Enterprise Incidents fans, we are jumping in at the beginning of this episode just because there's things going on in the world that we wanted to talk about. I'm Steve Morris. And I'm Scott Mance. And things have certainly changed in just the short couple weeks since we recorded this episode and when we went to post. And we felt like it was really necessary to uh, uh, address that. So, you know, even though we recorded this episode just a couple weeks ago, it doesn't sound dated. And I'm sure you know the episode we're going to be talking about in the context the relevant context of which it now fits in today's world. So when we recorded this, it was at the end of February, and this is 2022 for anyone who's listening to it years later. And at that time, Russia had advanced troops to the border of Ukraine, but they hadn't invaded yet. And at this point, it's a couple of weeks later, Russia's invaded Ukraine. They are attacking Kiev. There's a real war going on. And this definitely, definitely relates to the episode of Star Trek that we're talking about. And the episode of Star Trek that we are talking about, of course, is A Private Little War, uh, an episode that was filmed as a as a direct take on the conflict in Vietnam at the time, but uh, an episode that expands far, far beyond uh, just Vietnam before and since uh, with regards to, well, we'll get into all that in, in the actual episode, but in terms of of, you know, having to really just you know, pour our hearts out to the people of Ukraine. And, uh, and, and of course, watching this episode now just makes it even more relevant for all, for reasons that are, that are appropriate, but also unfortunate. Um, and I had a thought, Scott, which was I came, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I actually think that Star Trek, the original series, is almost like a perfect guide to some of these problems we have in international relations. And I was wondering if you give me a moment to lay it out with you. Yeah, it's, let's hear it. Here's the thought is that we have two superpowers, and those are the Klingons and the Federation, mm-hmm. like the Soviet Union and the United States. And they shouldn't fight each other because if they fight each other, millions of people are going to die. So the Organians step in and say, no, no, we're going to stop this. Right. But that doesn't mean that those two great powers don't have interests. Maybe they have interests in terms of resources, like we see in Friday's Child, where both of them want resources of the planet. Well, that's oil in the Middle East, that's bananas and fruit in South America, and we fight for those resources. Maybe they're strategic needs. There's a place that's really important, like Sherman's planet that we see in Trouble with Tribbles. That's right. That's like the Suez Canal. That's like the Soviet Union always trying to get to the sea. Maybe it's that a country has a f- sphere of influence they want to protect. Well, that's like the Gorn trying to protect their planet in arena. Well, that is China and Taiwan. That is uh, the reason Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And that is the justification that Putin has given for invading Ukraine. And all of these are things that we see in Star Trek. You know, that's the thing about Star Trek is that that here we are more than 55 years after the original series first premiered. And so many of these themes, like just for the tip of the iceberg, the ones that you just mentioned, are still relevant today. And that's why the show holds up. And that's really one of the reasons why we're even doing this podcast and and why it, it, it it's really connecting with people who've been listening and who've been sharing it around. For that, we definitely thank you. But uh, but this is something that, you know, in, in just a couple of weeks, Steve, since we recorded our deep dive on a private little war as the situation in Ukraine has escalated, I, I really thought to myself, boy, I wish we could go back and re-record this, uh, this deep dive. But but I think that's why uh, it, your idea to do this 
this introduction before we really get into it was really a great idea. Um, well, thank you. And you know, you know what it is, is, is that we see Star Trek wrestling with these issues back in the mid 60s. And you and I are wrestling with them today. And I think the reality is, and that's what makes Private Little War so powerful. There's no solution here. There's no like magical way that you can, that Captain Kirk can sweep in and solve all these problems. They're complicated, they're difficult, and they're often tragic. And you know, you know, the other thing I thought about too, especially since we recorded the episode, because uh, you know, we the, the things we talked about in the conversation are things that that really stayed with me, and I really thought more about, and and actually wish we could have like gone back. Hey, let's let's record more. But the thing that really struck me was in the case of a private little war, it was it was a an escalation that was very easy to start because the Klingons stepped in and armed the villagers. But it's a it's a situation that has no easy resolution because of the situation that Captain Kirk feels he is forced into and the decision that he feels he has to make. Was that the right decision? That's up to you to decide. Was that uh, the only decision? Uh, That's something we get into in the episode. And as important as Star Trek is, and as much as we love Star Trek, it's not nearly as important as the people in Ukraine and what's going on in the real world and the brave people that are just trying to protect their lives, the lives of the people they love and the country that they live in. And it's uh, it's really, really great for you to be here, to join us here on Enterprise Incidents as we get into our deep dive of A Private Little War. So without further ado, let's get to it. And if the Klingons give their side even more, then we arm our side with exactly that much more. A balance of power. The trickiest, most difficult, dirtiest game of them all, but the only one that preserves both sides. Bridge to all decks, brace yourself, and I mean brace yourself, for what's bound to be a very provocative episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris, and usually at this point I make some kind of dumb joke regarding (laughs) the episode, and A, I don't really have a dumb joke, and B, I, I just said to Scott off mic... I'm still struggling to figure out exactly how I feel about a private little war. I, I don't blame you. I understand because for the first time since we've been doing Enterprise Incidents, you know, usually I'll, I'll rewatch the episode once to prepare for our deep dive. But over the last five days, I have rewatched a private little war three times. Wow. Not because I don't know what to say about it. I certainly know what I want to say about it. Curious to know how that will change after our conversation. But what I remember about about our discussion, you know, off camera about a private little war, Steve, is that when we first decided to move forward with doing enterprise incidents in the first place, I vividly remember you saying to me, imagine the kind of conversation we're going to have on enterprise incidents <laughs> when we get to an episode like a private little war. And now, Steve, here we are. Yes. I And I still don't know the answer <laughs> to what kind of conversation we have. And I think it's because, you know, I, I'll answer the question that you normally ask about how did I always feel about this episode? To me, this is a solidly in the middle episode. It's not terrible. It's not great. I've always found it engaging and I've always found it really troubling. And it's definitely one where the more I think about it, the more conflicted I get about this episode. I, I completely understand. You know, there are certain episodes we talked about where, like when I was a kid growing up, I th- Maybe I thought they were okay, or I or I, I I thought they were fine, entertaining enough. But as I've grown up and as I've gotten older, and hopefully wiser, my opinion on these episodes changed. And of course, 
you know, another another uh, uh, way to bring up Metamorphosis. That's one that I've come to appreciate more to the extent that, that it's my favorite episode of all time. But in the case of A Private Little War, yeah, I like growing up, I thought it was an entertaining episode, a lot of action, a lot going on, location shooting, production design, wardrobe, um, you know, a, a monster in a, you know, <laughs> a suit. <laughs> in a suit. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it is really an episode that in in more recent years, and I say recent meaning like 10 years, this is an episode where I go, wait a minute, wait a minute, do I really agree with our hero, <laughs> Captain James T. Kirk, for his actions in this episode? And I still don't know the answer to that. Because I don't know what his options were, what his alternative was. I'm sure we're going to get into that. But, you know, this is an episode that, just like Bread and Circuses, which I felt like has gotten more relevant in more recent years because of like something like reality TV, uh, an episode like Miri, which has gotten extremely relevant because of a global pandemic. You know, here's an episode that has gotten relevant, I would say, even, you know, 20 years ago because of Afghanistan. And like it is still, it is still the same old problem for which there is no easy resolution. And regardless of whether you agree with the resolution, there is no easy resolution. Well, and, and I would say, you know, A, of course, it did continue to be relevant for a 20-year war in Afghanistan. And right at this moment, as we're recording it, the Russian army is on the border of Ukraine and the United States is in the position of having to decide what to do. Mm -hmm. What do we do when there is someone who is about to go into a country and do we interfere? I mean, this is and, and we're never going to not have to deal with these problems as long as we're a world superpower, which at least for a long time, I think we're going to be. And the, this is the one thing I'll say before we get into it is a obviously these are complicated political issues. And I will just say that anybody who thinks that what happens in a private little war and really what happens in our world is a simple problem is wrong. Absolutely. Like these are not simple. There is no simple solution to any of this. No, there's not. And there is no solution in which nobody gets hurt. There's no solution in that's clean. It's all complicated. It's all difficult. And whatever decisions are made, there will be downsides to them. And, and there's there's definitely going to be a lot to talk about as we go through this episode. And, and just before we get into it, Steve, because we've been doing these deep dives for the first time for the first time since uh, uh, ever watching A Private Little War, it made me think of two prior episodes. Uh, one of them, well, can you guess which episodes I'm thinking of? There are a bunch, actually. I mean, I, I think, because I think of um, Errand of Mercy. Okay. I think of Taste of Armageddon. Okay. I think of The Apple. Okay. Um, yep. mm -hmm. I th And there are other ones. I mean, <laughs> but those ones to start. Uh, the, the Apple was definitely one I was definitely in the forefront of my mind with the Garden of Eden mm -hmm. being referenced a couple times. Uh, another one, more for the aesthetic of it. The, the production value, the location right. is Friday's Child. Friday's Child, sure. And then, of course, uh, of course, our end of mercy, because you're referencing the treaty, right. although it's never actually said the Jordanian Peace Treaty. But Private Little War was very heavily rewritten by Gene Roddenberry himself to the point where he got the telepay, the teleplay by credit over uh, Don Ingalls. Don Ingalls wrote the story. And he was credited for the story, not under Don Ingalls, but under Judd Cruces. So he was heavily rewritten by, 
by Q, by Gene Kuhn, but definitely by Gene Roddenberry to the point where he did not like what Gene Roddenberry did with his with his original story that he used the pseudonym. And Don Ingalls, uh, this is uh, the second of two unpleasant experiences for him <laughs> because he also wrote The Alternative Factor. So, yeah, Star Trek just was not good to Don Ingalls. Uh, but the episode was directed by Mark Daniels. Mark Daniels, who... With all the episodes of Star Trek he had already done by this point, this was his first episode that he did on location. Hmm. So I thought he did a great job with with that part of it. Sure. Uh, the episode was filmed between September 29th and October 6th, 1967, in six days. So it was on schedule. It was the 46th episode to film. It was the 48th episode to air, which it did on February 2nd, 1968. And yet, with all of the location shooting and the the hair, the makeup, the wardrobe, this episode came in under budget. Wow. The budget for A Private Little War, uh, the cost of it, rather, was $179,427 under the uh, per-episode budget around this time, which was around $180,000 to $182,500. So it came in about $3,000 under budget. They did save a little bit of money on the score because it was all tracked except for that very last bit at the end mm. when he says, we're very tired, Mr. Spock, beam us up home. Yeah. That was a new uh, bit of music, not recorded for this episode, but used only at the end of this episode because it was so downbeat. But as I mentioned... Can I say something real quick just yeah. about the budget? There, there's a lot of scale to this. We're on location. We got a lot of costumes and wardrobe and hair and makeup and all that stuff, as you said. The only way to come in under budget under those circumstances is planning and efficiency and really, really knowing what you're doing. Well, the That's fact, how you save money. Uh, the fact that they, they did all this in six days. Yeah. Mark Daniels was very, very prepared for You've this episode. got to be prepared, yeah. For sure. And it obviously, it was, in, it was in really great hands. But when Don Ingalls wrote his story outline on April 30th, 1967, the title was Tyree's Woman. When he went to a second revised story outline on June 10th, that's when he changed it to A Private Little War. He wrote two draft teleplays, the second of which came in on August 30th. Then Gene Kuhn, before he left the series in early September, this is probably one of the last teleplays that, that Gene Kuhn worked on because he left in early September. Uh, he did a script polish. And then Gene Roddenberry did his rewrite on September 20th. Then he did two polishes, the second of which came in on September 25th. And, you know, th this... Uh, the, what I what I noticed, okay, so for the first half of the second season, Roddenberry wasn't really there. He was away, uh, either on vacation or prepping a TV movie version of Robin Hood, which never happened. So it was during that time we discussed this during Mud's Women and Trouble with Tribbles. You know, Gene Kuhn took the series in a more lighthearted direction, shall we say. Gene Roddenberry came back. He didn't like that. And as David Gerald pointed out during our discussion on Trouble with Tribbles, they, that rift is the reason why Gene Kuhn left the series. So what I think happened was Gene Roddenberry with like uh, Bread and Circuses and definitely with A Private Little War wanted to exert his authority as executive producer. Right. And he really took the show back. And that is why he... 
he certainly had a lot to say. He was very preaching in this episode, for better or worse, uh, but he is the sole teleplay uh, credit, which I think is interesting. I think it's so too bad that I, and, and who knows, you know, people can get very possessive. They can get very intense about their opinion and very stubborn. And I wish when Gene Roddenberry came back, he could have said, listen, I hate this iMud thing and it's way too comedic. Yeah. But you made some great episodes on Mirror, Mirror and Doomsday Machine, all these ones that are not overly comedic at all. And just instead of having a big blow up, have a course correction. Yeah. Say, let's stay more in this camp over here. And this was too far. Right. You know, and then then everybody could be happy and Gene Kuhn can stay on the show. Such a shame. You know, it's, it's such a such a what there are so many what ifs with Star Trek. What if Gene Kuhn stayed on? What if uh, Star Trek got a much, much better time slot in yep. its third se- season? In order for Roddenberry to stay on uh, and to and to take back his role as the showrunner, like he had in the first half of the first season, so many what ifs, uh, well, and, and, and it's a tragedy. It, well, and the weird thing about it is, if those amazing things had happened, we probably wouldn't have ninety-seven Star Trek shows today, because it's the show going off. If it had a great <laughs> six-year run, people go, "Wow, that was a great show." It's because it went off the air that you had the you know the groundswell of attention that made it become part of our cultural landscape. Well, you know? that, that's what I like to call, and I, I've mentioned this quite a few times, uh, but people really picked up on how I've referred to that that period in the early 70s where people like you and me discovered the show right. in syndication. It was the syndication generation that that gave Star Trek its its new life, yeah. leading to the movies and all these, like you said, 97 North Star Trek shows, uh, which um, some of them are good uh, and some of them are not. <laughs> but uh, anyway... Back to a private little war. Uh, so my question for you, Steve, and I couldn't wait to ask you this question, is with an episode that had so much to say, whether you like it or not, was there a lot going on in the world during the production of this episode? The answer is yes. And the biggest things, there, there are two things happening right at this moment. The first is on September 29th, Lyndon Johnson made a speech in Texas at which he said, I am convinced that seeing this struggle through now in Vietnam, we are reducing the chances of a larger war, perhaps a nuclear war. Mm, mm. I mean, that's as on point of a private little war. Absolutely. As you it is. Could imagine. Yeah. He's, he's where Kirk is at the end of the episode, basically. Um, and even though he's heard already that the, the evidence that the war is unwinnable, unwinnable, all those things that has come out later in the Pentagon papers, mm-hmm. he already knows about, mm-hmm. uh, on, October 1st, Color TV has now made it to France. So we've had it in Canada, in England, in Germany, and France. It's slowly making its way around the world. On the 2nd, Thurgood Marshall uh, was sworn in as the first African-American Justice of the Supreme Court. He served 24 years until 1991. Wow. On October 3rd, the X-15 rocket plane completed the fastest ever flight of an aircraft, reaching Mach 6.724 5,200 something miles per hour. Wow. And and depending on how you do your statistics, this is the fastest plane ever in the world. Interesting. There's another one that's sort of, it's really a rocket that they were testing to go into space that had a low, not into space flight that's much faster than this. Um, But this is the only, the fastest real plane. North Vietnam on the same day rejected LBJ's peace proposal, his latest one. And then the U.S. dropped bombs closer to communist China in North Vietnam than they ever had before. So we're at this moment that 
he makes a peace offer while simultaneously saying we're going to get rid of, you know, this is going to stop a larger war, and then we're bombing even closer to communist China. You know, we, we haven't even reached the peak. In terms of its production, Steve, we yeah. have not yet reached the peak of the Vietnam conflict. But by the time it aired, by the time this aired in February, like, wasn't that around the time of the Tet Offensive? It's right after the Tet Offensive. That's oh, one of the things I was going to say. Man. Because the Tet Offensive is over basically right near Christmas, I think, um, of that year. And here's, you know how when you watch the news that they then have their little comedy one? Yeah. Well, here's ours for this week. Is uh, On October 4th, there was a literal bull in a china shop in Chester, Pennsylvania. <laughs> in Chester, Pennsylvania, a large bull escaped from a slaughterhouse and ran amok in downtown, went through two... Not just one, but two jewelry stores breaking a lot of glass and making causing a lot of damage. A bull in a china shop. A literal bull in a china shop. <laughs> um, and that is what was going on when this film came out. Wow, amazing. Uh, should we get into it? Let's get into A Private Little War. Hey, Starfleet was right. These uh, roots and soil cultures can be a medical treasure house. Any problems there? No sign of the inhabitants so far. Kirk out. And Kirk is with Spock, and they spot a big footprint in the ground. Uh, the footprint that you see is, is called the, the, the footprint of a Mugatu. But the footprint that we actually see, my friend, is uh, stock from uh, the rabbit in Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same. It's stock footage. It's stock footage. Oh, I didn't realize yeah, that's awesome. Uh, but the, so, so these scenes that we're, we're seeing on location mm -hmm. actually started filming on day two of the production. It was the first of three days on location at Bell Ranch, which is an area separating the San Fernando Valley from Simi Valley. Hmm. And uh, the, the planet that they are on, Steve, mm -hmm. is it's never mentioned in the actual episode, but it is in the script. Okay. And uh, remember how I said the planet from Bread and Circuses, not mentioned. Uh, fans kind of gave it a name or fan right. fiction, Magna Roma. Mm-hmm. So, but this was actually written in the script for A Private Little War. It was called Noral. What does that sound like? S say it again. Noral. Sounds like moral? Sounds like neutral. Oh, neutral. Mm. Oh. Yeah, all that's missing is the T. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a, for an episode that is not subtle, the planet name <laughs> is also not subtle. Aside from that, you say it's the Garden of Eden. And, and here's something, you know, we, you know, we've kind of connected all of these episodes with yep. similar themes. Mm -hmm. There's, I think we've come up with ways that that's really interesting because we're exploring the same ideas from multiple angles. There's also a certain point where it's like, come on, guys, you know, let's have a few. This is we're, we're spending a lot of time in Garden of all the way back to the cage. We're dealing with ideas of Gardens of Eden. And eh, maybe we've been here a lot. It's interesting to hear you, a filmmaker, say that because the filmmakers who made this episode felt the exact same. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Especially Dorothy Fontana. She said, didn't we already do this, uh, you know, with the apple? And and, and certainly, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of similarities, like I mentioned, uh, uh, to to Friday's Child. But, but, you know, it's okay. You know, I still think it works. And, and in this case... There is a there is a history for Kirk, isn't there, in this episode? Aside from that, you say it's the Garden of Eden. Or so it seems with a brash young Lieutenant Kirk in command of his first planet survey. That was 13 years ago. So my guess is because it was around that time that Kirk had his experience with the uh, cloud vampire uh, on, on in Obsession. Mm -hmm. He mentions uh, last time I caught an order like that was, you know, 11 years ago. And so... So I'm guessing that Kirk was a was on the Farragut during this mm. time. 
even though he didn't mention the ship. Is this before or after he was teaching at the academy? That's my question. Like, I'm assuming it was after, but, but 13 years ago was a very long time, and Kirk is 34 years old. So I'm guessing that this is before Kirk taught at the academy. So I don't think the timeline quite makes sense because of Gary Mitchell's age, right? You know what I mean? Because yeah. then, then if the, but I think, it, but in terms of character, it would make sense to me that the very serious Lieutenant Kirk is after what happened with the cloud and obsession. I completely, that agree. would make sense to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's in terms of the the timeline that that makes perfect sense to me too. And what we hear is that this is an incredibly peaceful society, and even though they have things like bows and arrows, they, there's no fighting amongst themselves. Uh, it's peaceful, it's tranquil, and then we hear someone yelling. Oh, take cover here! Just on cue, because Kirk is saying they're so peaceful, and then you hear, you know, over here, and, and then and we look. Kirk and Spock look on in the distance. And there's some guys with guns. Some guys with flintlocks. Yep. There's no way they should have awesome. flintlocks, because Spock says, weren't you just talking about bows and arrows? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so something is definitely wrong. And it's going to get uh, wronger. <laughs> well, and not only that, we see these people are dressed, these are the villagers, and they're dressed in, you know, kind of old fashioned, like medieval sort of outfits. And then we see in the distance, there are some hill people, um, which are dressed in more primitive apple, uh, outfits. And by the way, now, whenever I hear the word hill people, I hear... <laughs> from Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't not hear that. And Kirk's first instinct is, is to draw to take his out phaser. phaser. He draws his phaser. Spock reminds him about the Prime Directive. Yep. So soon after Red Circus, Circuses, yeah. where they were so, so driven to abide by the Prime Directive. So he looks for something to distract mm-hmm. the villagers from shooting the hill people because his friend Tyree, who he lived with, is among those hill people who were uh, uh, walking. And, and into an ambush. Yep. So he takes a stone and he throws it. And as it, the, the stone hits the ground, the villager is distracted, fires his gun, misses his target. And Tyree screams out, villagers. And then all hope breaks loose. Kirk and Spock are running away. And the villagers are running after Kirk and Spock. One of the villagers aims, open fire, and Spock goes down in a big fall and i'm wondering if this is the same stunt guy oh yeah it doesn't look like uh jay jay jones okay uh, uh but yeah that is that's a hell of a fall mm-hmm. so in earlier versions uh, of the story it was actually kirk who got shot oh now the reason why it was changed is because uh they they dorothy fontana was the one who pointed out that that there's no way that nona is going to be able to cure kirk from a gunshot wound. And, yeah, and McCoy can't. Right. And, and it was actually Bob Justman who said, uh, let's, let's have someone else get shot because Kirk is going to get bit by the, the creature. And that's where we need Nona to, to, to cure him and, and, and you know, basically influence him for the rest of the episode. What, what I think so great about it is, and I don't know if this was the purpose or the thought process behind it, is what it sets up is that Kirk is not with Spock. He's with McCoy. Right. And I think, because most of these adventures, if we're going to have an adventure down on the planet, it's usually Kirk and Spock, if it's going to be just two of them. And I think the fact that it is McCoy throughout this episode is way better. I agree. I agree. And, and you know, the, the dynamic between Kirk and McCoy very different. is very, yeah. very different yeah. from the dynamic with Kirk and Spock. So after uh, Spock, like you pointed out, he goes down. down. And 
uh, here come the villagers. Mm -hmm. And Kirk, again, takes out his phaser. No, Captain. I can travel. This this part of the teaser actually reminded me of that moment in Bread and Circuses mm. where the landing party beamed up in the absolute right. nick of time. Now, Scotty, have medics stand by. They're beaming up, and, and just as the materialization is complete, the villagers get there, and they're like, where'd they go? Now, here's what's interesting. I never noticed this before. But as Kirk and Spock and McCoy are beaming up to the Enterprise, the, in the lower right-hand corner of the screen, McCoy's equipment that it was taking the soil samples, mm. it's, it's right there in the bottom right-hand part of the screen. Oh. But when the three of them beam up, the transporter effect is over Shatner, Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly, but not on the equipment, and the equipment just disappears. Hmm. So it's a little little bit of a snafu there with this visual effects, but you know, I could see why they would have missed it. But it's still, it's a great teaser. A lot happens in three minutes and 30 seconds. Absolutely. And we start Act One, we're in the transporter room, Spock is hurt, and there is a new doctor there. Oh, yes. Dr. Mbenga, played by Booker Bradshaw. And this is the first of two appearances of Dr. Mbenga in the original series, because we were going to see him again, apparently, in the uh, brand new Star Trek Strange New Worlds mm. series. But uh, Booker Bradshaw played Mbenga again in That Sh that Which Survives from Season 3. So Booker Bradshaw was actually, in addition to being an actor on TV shows like Tarzan, the FBI, and the Mod Squad, Booker Bradshaw, was also a Writers Guild Award nominee hmm. for an episode of The Rockford Files. Oh. Uh, he also wrote episodes for Columbo, The Jeffersons, Good Times, Different Strokes, and Give Me a Break. And uh, so, so when we come back into Act One and we see that A Private Little War, teleplay by Gene Roddenberry, Story by Judd Cruces. Mm -hmm. So Judd Cruces, like I mentioned, is a is a is a pseudonym for Don Ingalls. Uh, and where did Judd Cruces come from? It actually comes from Judicious Cruces, where two kings send out two paladins to battle each other rather than two armies, and whoever won the fight won the war. That's where that that pseudonym comes from. So a kind of a private little war. Exactly. A private little war, only in this war was won by Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, by the way, I love the casting of Dr. Mbenga. He's great. I mean, and, and the thing is, is again, it's doing this thing of without putting a lot of spotlight on it, of going, here is an extremely educated, important, respected figure that we're giving this to uh, an African-American. And it's interesting, too, Mbenga is an African name. So it's saying things about what's gone on on Earth you know, as well, in terms of how all these civilizations have worked a lot of stuff out in the in a couple of centuries. See, now, what I love about the original series, when we had uh, uh, Percy Rodriguez play Commodore Stone mm -hmm. in Court Martial, here in the 60s, during the height of the civil rights movement, yep. you have a black actor playing a prominent role. It doesn't matter that he's black or white. It, it's just, he's, he's a, a doctor, you know, mm -hmm. and he's there because he's a, a doctor. And I just love that for the diversity and the representation that we saw in the original series. It just was. Mm -hmm. It just it was there. It, it didn't have to draw attention to itself. It didn't have to beat you over the head with it. 
I thought Booker Bradshaw was a great addition to this this episode, mm-hmm. and certainly that which survives. Uh, so it's a shame we didn't see him more often. I really, really like this guy. Fuck his heart's where his liver should be, or he'd be dead now. A little bit of anatomy, too. <laughs> yeah, full um, anatomy. And right at this moment, we hear a red alert because there is a Klingon vessel coming in. And this is this thing that Star Trek does well. It's like we have one emergency, and we're going to layer a second emergency on top of it. And this is really great. Like, when they beam aboard the Enterprise, and they're in the transporter room, like, right there, McCoy is, like, basically checking Spock out and right. trying to sort of Being almost operate. Doctor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there you go. This is this is what you've been waiting for. Yep. This is the come up. Well, we just came from um, uh, Journey to Babel. He was a really good doctor in Journey <laughs> there to you Babel. Go. Yeah. Right, right, right. Sometimes he is, sometimes he isn't. But so so Kirk is, uh, is making his way to the bridge uh, with Scotty, and he turns around, and he looks back at McCoy, and he says, Holmes, I don't know yet, Jim. And the performances are great, I yep. think, in that moment. Uh, we're on the bridge, and what we find out from Chekhov is that basically the Klingons haven't noticed them because we're on the other side of the planet from them, and hopefully we can stay not noticed. And they can't give a message to Starfleet because that would give they don't themselves want to give away. Them away. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Kirk to Sickbay. McCoy here. I'll call you as soon as I know anything. Sickbay out. And again, Shatner's performance is great. He's great. He's got a lot on his mind. Yep. He's got his his friend and his first officer, his science officer, has been shot. He doesn't know if he's going to live. This peaceful planet that he that he had such fond memories of has been disrupted, and now the Klingons are there. Here's my question for you. Yes. Why are the Klingons there? I assume that it's like, well, we've heard that there's good resources here for McCoy uh, that can be used for medical stuff. We assume there are other resources like there were in Friday's Child. And maybe in terms of its position, this is a good location just like Organia or, or any of those places were. That's my or assumption. Sherman's Planet. Or, or Sherman's like Planet, yeah. Okay, now, those are great assumptions. But but I feel like this is one of the flaws of this teleplay, mm. is that we don't know exactly why they're there. Right. Like, you, I, you know, I, I never thought about, well... You know, McCoy's putting out the the, the chemical compounds yeah. of the of the organics. Uh, maybe, maybe that's why they're there. I, I mean, maybe. I mean, it doesn't seem like a very Klingon thing to get to to be into. Uh, in terms of the strategic position of the right. planet, uh, that's certainly a motive. Maybe you know there were dilithium crystals there. That would that would have been a hell of a motive. But we don't know. We really don't know why they are there. Why are they? Why are they so interested in this planet? Like, what's in it for them? What's What's the end game here for the Klingon involvement and for the Klingons to 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 go a step further than they did in Friday's Child? In Friday's Child, they they were both after it was like mining rights or something. It, it was mining it? rights for life saving materials, right? Okay, but neither the Federation nor the Klingons offered to arm. The Capellans. Right. The Capellans didn't need it. The Capellans were doing quite fine with the Clea, which was right. just as deadly as Phaser. In this case, this is a very, very primitive society, almost Stone Age, um, that has now been advanced by, the horror says, 12 centuries. So I think this is problematic in a whole bunch of story reasons. And I, and I think part of the reason they don't go into this anymore is it would expose why this this actually ruins the show i think because why are we hiding from the klingons like why are we trying to not let them see us we have a peace treaty with them we literally at space station whatever it was for the trouble with tribbles k7. we're having k7 we're having conversations with them you see i won't remember any of those things. <laughs> um, we're having conversations with them if you have a peace treaty you could just go hey klingons what are you guys doing here right 
Right. That's right. And if you have a peace treaty that says you can't arm this other planet, if that's part, if they're violating the peace treaty, well, then you go and you deal with that. You're breaking your agreement according to our peace treaty. We're going to go back to those balls of light on Organia and say, hey, these guys are cheating. Like there is no reason that you have to do what they're doing. And it also goes to like, well, why are the Klingons arming this group of people? Exactly my problem. You know, it's like, like why are they doing this? Not, and so, and, and what I think their solution, the, this solution is we're just going to avoid talking about that. That's we don't want any. And, and this is, of course, one of the many signs of bad writing. If there's a major flaw in your story and you go, let's just avoid it <laughs> yeah. instead of let's solve it. And, and I think it's because they wanted to create this situation where they could put create this problem. Exactly. And so they chose to ignore all this other stuff that the stakes yeah. needed to be clear on why a the Klingons are there and b why are taking the extra step to arm right. the the villagers and advance their their technology to kill the hill people. But but again, like why don't they just you know the Klingons could come in and just with one with one Klingon vessel wipe out the entire. Uh, uh, population of the planet and well, just take it over. And if you had said, which they kind of hinted at in Errand of Mercy, it's like, well, the Klingons' methodology is to, uh, uh, and in Friday's Child, is to create allies with a particular group and help them gain power, and then they will rule under, as a Klingon governor of part of the Klingon Empire. If we were talking about that, that would make this thing make sense. But again, then we get to the peace treaty, and why are we not confronting them directly. Exactly. Um, but so that's a bad thing about the writing, but I will say a good thing about the writing is what is exposition is always what's hard in writing. And is if you want to have it, you could have someone just do a monologue about flintlocks and development and 12 centuries. But instead you have people arguing about it is people are bringing up different points and yeah. that's always better for exposition. It's always better when there's conflict, even if it's a minor one. And I love that Chekhov and Scotty and Uhura are all ex, you know, they all know. All stuff. Chiming in, and they're all chiming in until Kirk gets frustrated. I did not invite a debate, and everybody goes back to their their stations, and Kirk apologizes. I'm sorry. Even though I don't, there's I have problems with the episode. Leaders that apologize, that is such a key thing. Not only does he apologize, but he expresses vulnerability. I'm worried about Spark. I'm concerned about what's happened to something I once knew down there. This is a leader that is able to admit mistakes and show vulnerability. And that is part of what makes and, – and nobody goes like, oh, Kirk's weak because he admitted that he made a mistake or mm -hmm. that he's mm -hmm. worried. And it's not the first time nope. he has apologized. Nope. We have no replacements for the damaged organs, sir. If he's going to live, his Vulcan physiology will have to do it for him. So my question is we just had Journey to Babel yes. where you had this this very, very big – Deal that McCoy was not familiar with Vulcan physiology to oversee this this transfusion mm. between mm -hmm. Spock and Sarek, and then you hear in this episode that Spock is in great hands right. because Doctor Mbenga interned in a Vulcan ward. So where was Mbenga when they needed him? Well, maybe the that's why he's here. <laughs> yeah. maybe maybe McCoy and Kirk went, man, we could really use an expert on Vulcan physiology. Bingo. It's, That's it. No, Mabinga, not bingo. Mabinga. <laughs> Mabingo. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I, I, this is also setting up. I also think it's because they just wanted to set up the thing that they're setting up yeah. for the B story. And this is definitely a clear, clearly separated A stories and B stories. And when Kirk hears that Spock couldn't be in better hands, he says, good, then you and I are transporting down. There are Klingons here. 
If their mission is a legitimate research interest in the planet's organic potential, then you're the one man who can tell me. And if that's not it, then I need help. Advice I can trust as much as Sparks. I think that's great. I think that's great. I think it's really good. If the Klingons are breaking the treaty, it could be interstellar war. Well, and the thing is, the Klingons are breaking the treaty. For sure they are. But his solution to this problem is really... Well, we're going to get into what we'll, that We'll get into is. that. But the Klingons are breaking the tree. Yep. So where are the Organians? Yeah. Like, like, did they just, like, you know, sort of make their point, show their power, and are into mercy, yeah. and, you know, we're not seeing them again? They're, they're done? <laughs> like, yeah. well, peace out? Yes. That yeah. is exactly what, have they, did they ever appear again in no, Star Trek ever? No, not, not in the, not in this form. Yeah. And the other thing we hear is we're planning to beam down is that in order to stay hidden from the Klingons, we might have to leave orbit, which is, again, a thing that we've heard in various other episodes. Sure. Yeah, um, it happened in Arena. In Arena, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we beam down. We're now in some native outfits. Want to think about it again, Jim? Starfleet's orders about this planet state no interference with... No interference with normal social development. I'm not only aware of it. It was my survey 13 years ago that recommended it. It's amazing. Like, when we were going through season one... Like towards the end, you know, they start to get into the prime directive. Right. But season two, you are really, really into the prime directive. Like it has been explored and and it has been broken. Right. <laughs> I mean, you have uh, the way it was. You have an extreme situation like in in bread and circuses where they really did everything they could to preserve the prime directive. And then you have a situation in the Apple where they, they broke it. Right. Uh, I mean, they justify breaking it, but they still broke it. Well, and th- this is the thing where the threat to the enterprise is a big deal. because, And I wish that in the Prime Directive they actually had a rule that said, hey, listen, if you're being attacked, you can, do, you can use yeah, self-defense. yourself. But yeah. that doesn't seem to be a rule that we've actually established. Right. And the other thing we hear is that McCoy read his report – which I think is cool, and says... Inhabitants superior in many ways to humans. Left alone, they undoubtedly someday will develop a remarkably advanced and peaceful culture. Indeed. And I intend to see that they have that chance. Up to this point, Kirk has not sort of gone there with thinking about, oh, we have to arm, arm the hill people. He hasn't gone there yet. What he's still thinking is is the end of Errant of Mercy. Mm when he says no one wants war and he was humbled and he said at the very end of the episode, you know, you think you're the most powerful force mm-hmm. in the universe. It's humbling to think that you're wrong, but they avoided a war because the, the Organians uh, raided the game. Yep. So at this point in this episode, he's still going by that. He's right. still thinking, I want these people to have a peaceful existence. I want these people to have what they had when I was here 13 years ago. And he's in for a very rude awakening in, in a lot of ways, one of them about to happen at this moment. <laughs> right, because he's walking forward, and I think it's actually still shocking. That scream comes out of nowhere. <laughs> and yes, it's a guy in a big fuzzy suit, but it's a pretty good big fuzzy suit. Uh, that big fuzzy suit is good enough to the point where I still get scared by the Mugatu. Yep. Like, I think it is a great suit. Uh, I mean, yeah, it looks like a guy in a fuzzy suit, just like the Gorn looked like a guy in a rubber suit. But I still think it's very effective. I think the scream that the Mugatu lets out, is it's scary. And the oh, yeah. Mugatu is a, it's a, definitely a, a predator, and they're all over the place on this mm-hmm. planet. 
So it's not going to be a surprise, Steve, to hear that the Mugatu was created and performed by Jonas Prohaska, who created and performed not only the Horta mm. for The Devil in the Dark, but also Yarnick in The Savage Curtain from season oh. three. By the way, those have very clear rankings in my mind. <laughs> the Mugato is the coolest. The Horta is weird. And the season three guys. Like... Uh, I, I love the Mugato. Again, yeah, I mean, yeah. the Mugato just looks great. That big yeah. horn on it. Yeah, it's cool. The, the white fur. Now, I, I should say, by the way, yeah. we have a, a, a listener whose Twitter handle, who has written to us many times, I believe is the Undiscovered Mugato. Exactly. Yeah. And I was thinking about that yeah. when we were doing this episode. So Undiscovered Mugato, this uh, this episode is for you. And Undiscovered Mugato will certainly know that in the script, the creature was not called the Mugato. It was called the Gumatu uh, with a G. Huh. The the uh, letters were switched. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it says, if you, if you look at the end credits... Uh, it says Gumatu hmm. in the end credits, but DeForest Kelly had trouble saying Gumatu. He kept saying Mugatu. So for the sake of filming the episode, it was Mugatu. <laughs> I think I like Mugatu better. Yeah, Mugatu. It's, hard, it's hard because you've heard it a million times and the other one's foreign. So, right, exactly. So it's not familiar. Um, and Kirk goes down, and when that thing bites Kirk, it's it's scary. Yeah. And McCoy has his phaser out but can't shoot it because it's on top of Kirk. Gets him off with like a rock and then kills the Mugato with a phaser. And Kirk is already, already in trouble. Uh, first of all, McCoy, DeForest Kelly, is terrific in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I this, agree. This is a great episode for DeForest Kelly. And I feel like DeForest Kelly has had so many really good moments and really good episodes. But I still think that his... His performance, his contributions are not fully appreciated. He was superb in The Deadly Years. He was terrific in Bread and Circuses. And now he's even more prominent in this episode because Spock isn't down there with them. Like the way he gets the Mugatu off yeah. of Kirk by throwing the rock, it's like, ha, ha, and he throws the rock. And then the Mugatu like jumps off of him and turns towards McCoy. And McCoy fires his phaser and the Mugatu disappears. Well, and this is the thing is we get to see a really strong McCoy in yep. this episode because, as you say, Spock's not here. And Kirk is obviously really sick. McCoy calls up to the Enterprise. Enterprise is left. And Kirk is clearly, he's in shock. Yep. And he is being affected by the poison. And, like, I, I tell you, you know, watching Shatner thrive in pain, mm-hmm. r- ride in pain like that. I, I believe that he was really in pain. <laughs> it's funny. It's come up on the cinephiles of who is the best acting in pain actor. And the one that it's just because it came up multiple times. Mel Gibson was the clear winner. Um, but there was some other ones. Now I can't remember who. But Shatner's really good. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what did you use to make up Mel Gibson's example? Uh, in Braveheart. Oh, uh, Braveheart? Because yeah. he, he looked like he was in a lot of pain in Lethal Weapon too. Well, that, yeah, those are those <laughs> other ones we were talking about. It <laughs> yeah. came up multiple times yep. that he was really good in pain. But um, now Shatner... Shattered is great. Tyree, some of his men, cure! Fortunately, McCoy at that moment looks up, and there are three hill people standing over him, and he yells to them. Emogatu attacked him. He's James Kirk. He's a friend of Tyree's. Blasted, do something! He's dying! Great end to Act 1. Yep, and Act 2, we're carrying Kirk almost Christ-like into the village. Yeah, you know. I noticed that. Yeah, his arms are out. Medical log, stardate 4211.8. Kirk is right about the people here. Despite their fear and our strangeness, 
They are compassionate and gentle. And we hear that Tyree has become their leader and that he's going to come back soon with his wife. You and your Garden of Eden. What's interesting is you have Kirk. He is incapacitated mm-hmm. on the planet. Um, what's happening on the Enterprise? Spock is incapacitated. Oh. So this is the only time, I think, in not just the original series, but the movies where Kirk and Spock are both incapacitated right. at the same time, just not in, not in the same place. Right. Well, it's a good point because this is also why McCoy kind of gets the shine a mm-hmm. bit because Kirk's not there and Spock's not there. We see some villagers walk by with their flintlocks and then out from behind the trees comes Tyree and his wife, Nona. Tyree is played by Michael Whitney. Michael Whitney, I did not know this, but you know Twiggy? Yeah. Okay, so Michael Whitney was married to Twiggy. Oh. Yeah, it was his second wife until Michael Whitney died in November of 1983 of a heart attack. He was only 52 years old. The guy who plays Tyree, which was which was really shocking. Um, but on TV, Michael Whitney was in shows like Death Valley Days, The FBI, Bonanza, and Charlie's Angels. As for Nona, wow, Nancy Kovac, she's terrific in this episode. I agree. But the 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 what happens to her is really disturbing, really disturbing, and. We'll, we'll get into all that. But uh, Nancy Kovac is actually an Emmy nominee for her performance in the Mannix episode, The Girl Who Came In With The Tide. She was also in TV shows like Batman, The Man From U.N.C.L.E., Perry Mason, and Bewitched. And on film, on the big screen, she was in Jason and the Argonauts. Ooh. And uh, if the movie The Outlaws is coming doesn't sound familiar, it's notable because it is the last movie to be made by the three stooges oh wow (laughs) um and i you know we talked about this before we talked about this with uhura in mirror mirror this is a sexy outfit and she looks sexy she looks amazing and certainly you know 11 year old steve was very very aware of this particular star trek character well 53 year old scott is also (laughs) very taken uh, with this character yes for no question that uh, bill tice the uh, wardrobe designer for star trek really knew how to dress dress the uh, dress the women and uh, uh you know nancy kovac you know when i think of the criticism that star trek the original series gets today for the way that women were misrepresented this is an episode that, that I absolutely think of. But at the same time, I think that Nona is a strong character. She is Lady Macbeth. That's what I was going to say. Why do you think she would, you would say she is misrepresented in this episode? Well, because, yeah, I mean, because of the way that her fate, I'll save it for, for, the, for the, the, the last act of the episode, for the way that the hill people, or, or, or rather the villagers, uh, see her uh, as an object and basically gang rape her. Well, uh, they, they attempt to. They yeah, they attempt actually to. do that. But it's a, it's 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 a really it was always a hard scene to watch, and it's even harder to watch uh, as a as a grown up in this day and age. It's right. just uh, what it, what happens to her character well, is really upsetting. Well, well, we'll get to it, but like. It's supposed to be upsetting. That's why I don't see it as a misrepresentation. It's yeah, not that, you right. know, what's weird about this episode in general is there are a lot of things where I go, this is well done. 
I don't know how I feel about it. And one of them is she is a really interesting character. For sure. Because she is not, she is on some levels our antagonist. On some levels, she's really aligned with what Kirk wants her to do. At some levels, she's, I mean, she is a really troubling person. And that's why the Lady Macbeth thing is is spot on. Yeah. You know, really so like, is. I don't think she's a misrepresented character. I think she is a complicated, three-dimensional, really difficult character. In, in, in a lot of ways, you could say that she's a more fully realized character yeah. than in Friday's Child. Uh, oh, Elian, yeah. you know, Elian, and she didn't want the baby. And the way that Elian was writ- was originally written by Dorothy Fontana, she was much more aggressive, right? Like the way that Nona actually is in right. this episode. So, so Fontana wanted. I mean, she. I mean, she. You know, she didn't write this screenplay, but she. Fontana wanted Elian to basically be like the person that Nona is in this episode. Nona is clearly knows what she wants. And is aggressively going after what she wants. And what she wants right now is to get some fire sticks like the villagers have so that they can start killing villagers. And Tyree is going, no, 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 because he's basically a pacifist. In time, the villagers will return to their ways of friendship. In time, they kill your people. And then we hear, I am a Kanutu woman. In all this land, how many are there? Men seek us because through us they become great leaders. Let me ask you a question. Yes. Does Nona love Tyree? No. No, she doesn't. No, she's just using him for his for his yes. position and because she she's seduced by power. Well, and this is what's really interesting about her character. Because uh, she just said men seek us because they become great leaders. And he says, I took you because you cast a spell upon me. How does Tyree feel about Nona? Well, okay. Clearly, he feels for her on a on a on at least a physical level. Uh, when she drugs him. When she drugs him. When she uses that plant, she you know puts it in, in his arm, and it's like some kind of hallucinogenic. Uh, how does Tyree feel about Nona? That's a great question. I mean, when he came to his senses, he should have been like, you know, hit hit the road. I mean, I so because one of the other questions we're going to have to get to is how real are Nona's powers over Kirk? Um, because I, him saying I took you because you cast a spell on me is not him saying I love you or I sought you out. Well, also what the 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 influence that that Nona has on Kirk goes much uh, deeper, if you yeah. will, because of the how she saved his life and how she saved his life which we're going to get to is goes a lot further than just saving his life. Well, this is, this is what we have to examine because right now she says, and I have spells that help me keep you, which means by the way, she's not saying you love me. She's saying I have a spell to keep you right. With I me. have power over you. And clearly this leaf, whatever it is, is powerful. Remember this leaf. And he smells it. The night we camped by the water. And he calls it mm, the night of madness. So clearly, this is a powerful drug. It turns people on, makes them lose their inhibitions, focuses him on her. And what I I think some stuff happened for the night of madness. Oh, that's why they, where they had the madness. where they had sex. And I think he is both turned on and ashamed of what happened. Probably yes. Yeah, that makes sense. He's but but at the same time. Uh, the, 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 the part of him that's turned on is the reason why that he still has her. No. 
It brought up evil beasts for my soul. <laughs> like, I don't think he likes her. I think he can't free himself from her. I think he is addicted to her, obsessed with her. Well, I think that there is still something there because when you get to the end of the episode, the way he screams out her name. Oh, yeah. He, I think he ultimately, I think ultimately he does love her. Well, I think what we could say is these are not simple emotions. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the rational part of his brain would like to get rid of her. And there is an emotional, deep, deep thing there. Absolutely. Um, because uh, she calls him, which is what's interesting, is so she wants him to fight, right? Mm -hmm. She wants him to gain power. She wants to get him fire sticks, all this stuff. He became a evil beast during the Night of Madness, and she calls him my huge angry man. Mm -hmm. Is that I think all of this is designed to bring out a side of Tyree that will help her to gain power. Absolutely, that's it right there. And what happens right at this moment, just as we assume that we're gonna kind of get it on is some of Tyree's people show, show up and say there are strangers in our camp one has taken the Mugato bite he dies strangers it is said the dying one is a friend of Tyree from long ago and Nona knows right away yep that one she yeah. knows exactly who they're talking about and she goes off with them and says bring him when his head clears yeah I mean he's like and this happens to Kirk later in the episode. Oh, yeah. Like, like, like she's got this power over him that he just doesn't, he can't just come right out of it. By the way, not for nothing, these look like some good drugs. I yeah, mean, I'm, that's just, true. I'm yep. just saying. Well, it was 1967 when they yeah. filmed it. A lot going on with the drugs uh, um, culture there. Yep. And uh, we're back in the cave. Kirk is shivering and McCoy's got his phaser out. And just like Sulu way back in Enemy Within... Using that phaser to warm up, heat up some rocks. Yep. And as he's heating up the rocks, Nona walks into the cave. Mm -hmm. uh, McCoy is oblivious yep. to the new presence. And and right there, she sees this stranger wielding this little box yep. that has a beam emanating from it, the likes of which Nona has never seen. This is beyond her imagination and she's seeing this beam heat up rocks she's seeing a display of power that she cannot conceive that for a moment she's scared yeah oh yeah i think you're right i think she's scared and she goes back to tyree and basically says you got to tell me everything about this guy or i'm gonna let him die i gave him my promise of silence he was made my brother and i'm your wife his sister i promise silence also nona she's very manipulative Again, the Lady Macbeth thing is right on point. Mm -hmm. She knows exactly what she's doing. She is uh, th like the, the, the powerful one oh, yeah. here. Well, and this is why it's going to, again, the end. But like Lady Macbeth, we can watch a character do terrible things and be really against them and still feel really bad for them right. later on in the mm -hmm. story. For sure. Um, and again, I'm not comparing A Private Little War to Macbeth. <laughs> this episode has real problems. Yeah. But it also has the, but it's, and it's funny, like alternative factor is pretty much bad. It's just bad. And this is like stressful and compelling and difficult and interesting and not bad. But problematic. But problematic. Yeah, I agree. Um, back on uh, the Enterprise, Spock's readings are very low in sickbay. We hear that Vulcan music and we, ha we see that Nurse Chapel is there holding his hand. And I just liked how. For for a character who gets even less screen time than like Chekhov or Sulu, yeah, that they're still continuing, like 
of all the people to have a common continuing thread chapel. This goes back to the naked time. Yeah. And that here we are in the middle of season two, and she's still showing love and affection for Spock. And I love, too, that she drops his hand just as Benga enters. I've seen this before in Vulcans. It's a way of concentrating all their strength, blood, and antibodies onto the injured organs. A form of self-induced hypnosis. I, I love that, that this episode deepens the physiology of mm-hmm. Vulcans. Like, I feel like every so often you get like, like the mind meld and, and you get the, the, the pitch, you know, and you got the pond far and, and a mock time. Sure. Uh, and now you've got this uh, self-healing thing going on. Uh, what I don't like, I'll tell you, the one thing that I don't like is the, mm. the inner eyelid. From, no, that's terrible. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> so, so, so two things about it. You know, we've often talked about the different kinds of nerds you and I are. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing you probably didn't do this. What? Which is when I, particularly as a kid, was had a cut or was injured or bruised, I would sit there and try to concentrate on it and meditate and see if I could send healing things to that spot. No, that was not yep. me. <laughs> um, and by the way, there are places where people can do things like this. This is not a completely like, you know, they, there are people that are able to stop the bleeding coming out of a certain part of their body. I mean, this is oh, real. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, there's a, it's a, I forget which sect it is um, where they, they put like a, a needle through their cheek and will pull it out and there's no blood and they have no pain. And then they, they've done it where they've had a guy like under scientific observation do it and watch what his brain like in an fMRI machine and watch what his brain is doing and that it's silencing certain parts of the brain to do this thing. There are a lot of things that, you know. That's very interesting. Yeah. I got to look that up. Do you mean he's conscious? Well, in a sense. He knows we're here and what we're saying, but he can't afford to take his mind from the tissue he's fighting to heal. I suppose he even knows you were holding his hand. Caught. <laughs> totally caught her and her reaction is embarrassed. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice moment of levity. We're back in the cave. And uh, Tyree enters with Nona, and she pulls out the uh, Mako root. The, the Mako root. Mako root. The Mako root. And the interesting thing that I always notice, I remember even as a kid, it was moving. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was like a little scary. Like it's I, creepy. It's creepy. Like this thing is moving. And this is where I actually give Don Ingalls and, and certainly Roddenberry, if, if, if he had more to do with, with this part, with this scene, is this scene is unlike any other scene in all of Star Trek. Because when, when she puts the root on Kirk's wound, mm-hmm. and then Tyree, he cuts her hand. Right. And she shows the hand to the camera. So, you know, this is a network television mm-hmm. in 1967. And you've got this, like, gaping wound on her hand that was self-inflicted. And now you have Tyree thumping the, the little drum. And she slaps her hand down on top of the maca root. Mm-hmm. And Nona and Kirk let out this passionate gasp. This scene has always been very erotic. Yeah, I think it definitely has that el- weird element to it. it, it and the, and the, the fact that you have the She's music. writhing around and the drum is beating. And, Absolutely. Yeah. She's not just healing him. She is making love to him. 
and she is definitely seducing him mm-hmm. and casting a spell on him. There is a lot going on. And certainly when I was a kid, when I was a you know teenager, I definitely thought this was a hot scene. But I still think that this is an extremely unique and erotic and passionate scene, very well acted, very well directed. And also the the music that they're playing is the music from, you know, the cage mm-hmm. uh, when he gets to Rattle 7. And, and it's very, very effective, the score, the way that it's used to support this scene. Uh, and she's going, she's saying things like your soul and mine. This is not just about healing the wound. She knows who Kirk is now. She knows what he represents. She has seen the power right. that he represents because she saw McCoy using the phaser. So she knows that, that in order for her to succeed and to advance and to go to where the power is, she knows that Kirk is her ticket to ride. And I think the thing we can add to this is that we've already seen her use one plant on Tyree that clearly works and she Mm -hmm. knows how to use. And during this, there is no evidence that everything she's doing isn't real because it works. Absolutely. The wounds disappear both on Kirk's shoulder and on her hand. Kirk comes back to life. Like clearly she does know some deep stuff. And so whether we, you know, it's like, because there's one interpretation that, Everything works, but the she can't he can't refuse her anything, which we're going to get to, is not true. But another interpretation is everything she says is true. Um, and so the drum continues, and we have the big final beat, and she collapses on Kirk, and Kirk opens his eyes. Oh, I had the strangest dream. He's definitely spent and out of it, but he is cured, mm-hmm. and McCoy notices right away. He goes to look for where the wound was on Kirk's uh, shoulder, and it's gone. Yep. And then he looks at her hand, and the big gaping wound from the cut on her hand is also completely healed. I would like to learn more about this. Our blood has passed through the Maka root together. Our souls have been together. He is mine now. And the interesting thing is that Tyree is just going along with it. He he knew what Nona was doing. He knows the power that Nona has. He knows that Nona was the only way that Kirk was going to get healed. Mm-hmm. But as far as like everything else that goes along with that, the power that she will now have over him, he doesn't he doesn't realize how jealous this is going to make him until he sees it for his own eyes. Well, this is a weird moment because he he says He's, you know, because McCoy asks, he is hers. When a man and woman are joined in this manner, he can refuse her no wish. But it is only legend. Well, it's a little more than a legend. Well, and this is the thing. Well, like, well, and Tyree, what's the last scene? He said, you put a spell on me. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. so, so his, I think the way he delivers a line, I actually think is really good because it's sort of flat. It's not going it's only a legend. I don't believe in it. And it's not going, I'm telling you this is for real. It's sort of in the middle. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know how I feel. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know how I feel about what's going to happen. Well, the, uh, what I was thinking about while I was watching this scene and, and certainly rewatching this episode as many times as I did over the last, uh, at last few days is that this woman is exerting her influence over Kirk and she can refuse. Uh, he can't refuse her. Right. It reminded me of what we're going to see in the third season episode, Alan of Troyes, when right. the doll man, you know, he touches the tears 
and he is like completely like under her spell. Well, the thing is, and I don't think this episode does this well at all, is that Kirk has more power to overcome stuff than other people can't overcome than anybody else. And why is that? Enemy Within, Naked Time, Tantalus Device, over and over and over again, Kirk has had to overcome stuff. And so practice. <laughs> he has built up the really, really strong will over time. We don't see him do that in this episode. It's really not here. Well, you know? well I, I think the reason for that is all those other episodes you're talking about, it was his love for the Enterprise. Right, right. And he's not on the Enterprise here. Well, and it's sort of, it, it, there's never, it also, in those episodes, it all comes to a moment where he must overcome it. Mm-hmm. And this, it's sort of, we don't know how much in her sway he is, and then she dies, and then it's over. You know, so it's like, right, it doesn't right. really ever come to him, which again is sort of, it goes into, and this is one of the issues with the episode. Like, well, what is this episode really about? You know, is it about him dealing with this woman and is he under a spell? Is it about international, you know, treaties and things like that or interstellar treaties, you know? Well, there's a, there's a lot. That's one thing about a private little war is that there is a lot going on. And yeah. even though uh, some of it is questionable, I think more of it works than doesn't. Yes. Uh, more yeah. of it more of it to the extent that that like like you pointed out the alternative factor. Right. That's a yes. bad episode. No, no. That doesn't the, work. I think moment to moment there's all sorts of things that work. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's the whole that it's like yeah, doesn't yeah, work out exactly. or not. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that brings us to the end of Act Two. In Act Three, McCoy wakes up in the cave, looks around to find Kirk, and where is Jim Kirk? Jim Kirk is sitting out of it over Nona. Which means that this is for real. Yeah. Something is going on. Something is going on. It ain't on. nothing. Right. And, um, and when Kirk comes to, mm-hmm. he doesn't even realize where he is. Yep. Like, he doesn't, like, remember how he even got to sit by Nona's side like nope. that. Well, he doesn't know who she is at this moment because right. he doesn't remember any of this. Mm-hmm. And what does Tyree do when he wakes up? He jolts awake. Yeah. He, like, like, like is, like, jolted awake. Something startles him. But then when he sees Kirk, he relaxes and he smiles. But I also think it's he just, there's this dude on my wife's bed. I think that's part of why he jumps up. Oh, yeah. I always wondered, like, why did he jump up I like think, that? I think he saw someone. He saw Kirk. Because this, this is why I go back to the sort of flat delivery of she, he's not going to be able to refuse or anything. Is he didn't know what was going to happen. And now the first thing he sees is he's at his wife's bed. Yeah. And this goes, and it also goes to, again, we could talk about sort of the emotional logical split is logically Tyree is a pacifist and his friendship with Jim Kirk is huge. Emotionally, Nona's got her hooks into him in a big way. For sure. Mm-hmm. But that's mm-hmm. not rational. I told him to take me to Tyree's camp. I knew you'd find a canoe to cure me. Akanutu is the, the local witch people here. They've studied. And that's when we see Nona. I am a Akanutu, Captain. And as soon as Kirk sees Nona, mm-hmm. he is speechless. Yep. He's completely smitten by her and not, not just physically, spiritually, emotionally. There's a connection between them now. Um, and he, but then he still is able to turn to Tyree and say, we've got to talk about these weapons and stuff like that. You've got to catch me up. Much has happened since you left, James. Come, we'll speak of it. And of things to be done. And he does not want her to come with them. Right. He, he holds her back. Well, and this is where I go. It's that split between 
this is what I should do as the leader of this tribe. And this is this woman that put a spell on me, basically. That's what I think. Back on the Enterprise, Spock's vital stallions are starting to fluctuate. And Mbengo leans in and says, There will be someone with you constantly now. When the time comes, I'll be called. And then he gives instructions to Nurse Chapel. As soon as he shows any signs of consciousness, call me immediately. Yes, Doctor. If he speaks, do whatever he says. And then Chapel says, Do whatever he says? Yes. Well, that's clear enough, isn't it? <laughs> I like Mbengo. You know, but here's the thing. This is, this is writing when you're writing to create a moment in the future by doing something that doesn't make sense in the present. Oh, I see. There is no reason that he doesn't say, listen, sometimes when Vulcans come out of this, they need physical pain in order to bring themselves to be consciousness. So it's possible that he might ask you to hit him, and then you should really hit him as hard right. as you he can. Doesn't, he doesn't really no like, reason for that. The re- and the reason is is because you want the scene where she's surprised and doesn't hit that. That's what you're looking yeah, for. You want Scotty to be like, but, what the hell are you doing? But him not telling her this, she might not have done it, and Spock might have died. Like, you would never not tell the nurse, hey, by the way, at this moment, you should make sure to um, give them this shot or or perform this procedure. Of course, you'd tell the nurse that. Yeah, for sure. Um, But it does create a fun moment later on. It's a fun moment. You say they make the fire sticks themselves. How can you be sure? I have looked into the village. I have seen it being done. Can you take us to their village while it's still dark? Yes. And then who's there? Nona. Nona. And I know you have many ways to make your friend Tyree a man of great importance. So Nona sees herself as, as Tyree's equal. She really does. Superior. Superior, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's more than just He's equal. a pawn for her to manipulate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. She, yeah, you're right. Um, the first thing is we start to realize that she knows. Tyree has told me much of you. Do not blame him was the price for saving your life. She promised not to tell anyone, right? And Tyree reminds her of that promise. You will not speak of this to others. I will not if I am made to understand. So she's going to continue to manipulate to get oh, yeah. to get what she wants. But she's never going to just be satisfied and leave it at that. She's always going to keep keep digging further and, and she, wanting to go further. And she goes, you owe me. Right. I saved your life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Kirk says something that I think is really key in terms of understanding the prime directive and why it is there. He says, We once were as you are, spears, arrows. There came a time when our weapons grew faster than our wisdom, and we almost destroyed ourselves. We learned from this to make a rule during all our travels, never to cause the same to happen to other worlds, just as a man must grow in his own way and in his own time. Some men never grow. So let's, let's start there, first of all. What happened to make them decide to have the prime directive? Well, that's a great question. I think throughout human history, we don't even have to go into space. Civilizations with more power have been messing around with civilizations with less power. Right. Whether it's colonial power, imperial power, whether it is proxy wars. And at some point we went, man, this system doesn't work very well. And particularly when you look at imperialism and colonialism, where there were a bunch of European people who said, we have all the right answers. And all these other places are savage or wrong or doing it the wrong way. And so we're going to go and we're going to make sure they act like us. And so we're going to change their religions, change their cultures, do all this stuff, because we don't like the way we're doing it. They're doing so, it. So what you're asking is like, at what point did they decide that this prime directive is going to stop, stop that vicious cycle? 
Right. Because to me, it's, you know what? Yeah, India wasn't doing things the way the British was doing. Does that mean it was right for the British to take over India and tell them to do it their way? And and the thing too, because the thing is, is what we're talking about here is someone's going to grow into who they're going to grow into. And she says, Some men never grow. Perhaps not as fast or in the way another thinks he should. But they're wise enough to know that we are wise enough not to interfere in the way of a man or another world. What I am saying okay. is that just because we don't like the way a culture is doing something, the prime directive says we have to let them go ahead and do it. Absolutely, right. That's okay. the point. And sometimes they're going to be doing things that we really, really don't like. And even then, because they might not grow in the way that we want them to grow, we have to let them do it. And part of it is is that a society that grows in a different way might come up with different stuff that we don't come up with. They might learn different lessons. They might do different things. And if we jump in and interfere and say, hey, hey, we got this all figured out, well, then they're not going to go in that direction. So we have to let them evolve how they're going to evolve. And I believe there had to be some disasters that they're thinking of in specific where they didn't do it that way and it went wrong. Listen, first of all, you just got out of a situation in bread and circuses yeah. where this is a situation where, you know, they did not enforce imperialism on, on this planet. Right. Uh, they, they just got out of there. Yep. Okay. In the situations that we saw where they deliberately did interfere, uh, you know, there was always some kind of justification for right. it. Okay. Well, and things like the Archons, that was a really, really broken, that wasn't okay. growing at all. That right. Well, neither anywhere. was the yeah. situation in the Apple. That's true. They okay. weren't growing, but they, they weren't were growing. Happy. But they were happy, but they weren't growing. Yes. And, you know, arguments, again, they're made to yep. support either way. And both of those arguments made by Spock and McCoy. Right. Okay. Just like arguments made by Spock and McCoy in Bread and Circuses about, about this planet. Well, and we're going to get arguments with Kirk and McCoy on this planet about Absolutely what we are. Absolutely we are. But, but somewhere along the way, I mean, who knows exactly when that happened. Right. Uh, who knows what caused that to happen, but maybe this World War III that they talked about in Bread and Circuses was the straw that broke the camel's back that made them say when they got out into space and they were starting to encounter other worlds, like, like guys, you know, we got to have something in place here. We, we can't interfere. We can't interfere with, with other civilizations. We got to let them grow on their own terms. So, I mean, when did that happen? I mean... Who knows? Well, well, of course, of, of course, we don't know. But to me, what's so weird about this is this is what this episode is about: is when do we interfere? And if you look at like post World War II, the big enemy and what the Klingons on some levels are representing is the Soviet Union. And while in a lot of ways people talk about this episode is a metaphor for Vietnam, right? I actually think it's less a metaphor for Vietnam as it is a metaphor for proxy wars all over the world. Because what we started to do was, and what the Soviet Union started to do, they want to expand. And we go, we have to stop communism from spreading. And so we started arming a whole bunch of people, some of them not so nice, to try to make sure that communism didn't spread. Right. And so, and so you know, whether it's, you know, talking about the Bay of Pigs or all sorts of places. This is something that American foreign policy has been doing a ton and is still doing to well, this I, day. I, th I think this episode does both. I think it's, it it's, does. I agree. it's addressing yeah. what you're talking about by, by addressing specifically. I mean, it, it specifically addresses the brush wars on the Asian continent. Right. So it is making it the ref reference to Vietnam, but that's the entry point to, to what you're talking right. about. Because again, you know, long after Vietnam, uh, the situation 
this exact situation read its head again when it came to Afghanistan. To me, this is that's what this episode is an examination of. Is it's actually an examination of us in the 20th century or even 21st century of how we deal with other cultures and other places. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and particularly in conflicts that are very difficult to resolve, which is where we are. You must let the villagers destroy us. You will not help your friend and brother kill them instead. Right. Nona lays it out. Yeah. And then Tyree angrily. No! I said I will not kill! You would let him die when you have weapons to make him powerful and safe? Then he has the wrong friends. I have the wrong husband. And she walks out. It's a pretty darn powerful exit. You will help in ways she does not understand. I have faith in our friendship, James. And this is the thing. There isn't a good way for him to help. Like Tyree's hope is maybe misplaced at this moment. Well, there's no easy answers. No, exactly. That's the big problem. Mm -hmm. That is both what makes this episode good (laughs) and what makes this episode troubling, I think. What's bothering you, Jim? If we find the Klingons have helped the villagers... There's certainly something we can do. That's what's bothering me. There's something we may have to do. So now where when they beam down to the planet, you know, he was not thinking about arming the hill people or, or a, a balance of power. He was trying to just kind of set, set well, the, the, things set the, the planet same. back to what yeah. it was 13 exactly. years ago, this peaceful society, and they're going to grow into uh, a, a peaceful, advanced culture. Like that's what he wants this planet to resume its course on. And now he's starting to think, oh, no, right. I might have to do something I really don't want to something, do. Something far more drastic. And here's the question. And I don't think we can know the answer. If there was no Nona, would Kirk be having this exact same thought? Or is part of why he's having this thought because she actually does have a powerful influence on him? Well, she definitely has a powerful influence on him. And I think that powerful influence on him is making him come to this conclusion much, much faster. Mm. So maybe he would come to this conclusion without her. I do. I do think he would have come to this conclusion okay. without her. Not saying that it's the right decision, uh, but I think that her influence, not just with her words, but her her spiritual her, influence her spiritual on him influence. now, is making him come to the decision he's right. going to come to much, much faster. And that's what's part of what's weird about this episode is that if that's true, then this is a corrupted Kirk making these decisions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that makes this more troubling than it was before. For sure. Um, Right. Well, actually, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Because if you're saying that the decision that Kirk makes to arm the Hill people with flintlocks is because he's been corrupted. Yes. And he is not... Well, it's possible. he, He is not acting on his... Like, completely on his own. That's... That... That's troubling. Yeah. That, that this is like not a, a purely instinctive decision independently on Kirk to come to this conclusion. That, that his decision to establish this balance of power, especially with the heated argument he's about to get into with McCoy, mm-hmm. is influenced by Nona. Yeah. 
That's a that's a that's a level I never considered. Well, this is what's weird about the one of the many things is weird about the episode, and that does two things. One is it, we actually could say that makes it more motivatable that Kirk makes a decision that I'm really not comfortable with, and two, it makes it a much more upsetting episode if in fact that is why he made the decision. Or mm-hmm, part exactly. Of yeah. I mean, even if it pushed him that way by ten percent or fifteen percent, it's troubling. Jim, this man believes in the same thing we believe in that killing is stupid and useless. That's Rodberry right there. <laughs> but then why did he write this episode where the con- conclusion is to arm these people? Remember when we were talking with the, with the David Gerald, mm-hmm. and David Gerald said that that in Gene Roddenberry's mind, Captain Kirk and Captain Picard are his avatars. Right. That's why like you, you do not diss the captain. You do not make fun right, of the captain. Right, right. You have an episode where Kirk is going to make a decision. And the way this episode is written... For Kirk to make this decision, Roddenberry must have felt that this was the decision that needed to be made. Yes, I think so. Yes. I think that is exactly right. And that's why it feels weird. Well, and this is, I wish I could have a conversation with Roddenberry and go, well, what was your point mm-hmm. in this episode? What were you saying? Clearly, you're talking very specifically about Vietnam. What was your point? <laughs> what were you saying that that meant? Um but as we're sneaking into this village and Kirk takes a couple guys out, right in the middle of that, we do a very hard, sudden cut. To a Klingon. To a Klingon. Klingon is uh, Krell. It's, his name is never mentioned in the actual episode, but it, it is written in the script that his name is Krell. Played by Ned Romero. He was on TV shows like Shane, Death Valley Days, Kung Fu, Policewoman, and he was on Star Trek The Next Generation in the episode Journey's End, hmm. and he was on Voyager in the episode The Fight. He was also in films like Hang 'em High, I Will Fight No More Forever, and this is a, a movie I definitely have to check out, Fabulous Shixes in Distress. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fantastic title. And in walks Appella, who is the leader of the villagers, played by Arthur Bernard, who was on shows like Mannix and Rich Man, Poor Man. You are late, my friend Appella. And what Appella says, and our, this is just a troubling line right at the beginning. A quarrel by my people. The division of some skins and a hill woman taken this morning. It's hard to divide one woman. It's very clearly talking about rape. I mean, that is what it, which rape oh, absolutely is a, it is. Is a, has been a part of war for throughout human history and among the most troubling and disgusting parts of war. And the Klingon's response is both logical in its way and very, very upsetting. Give her to the man who killed the most of her people. The others will see the profit in bravery. I'll make a Klingon of you yet. Um, by the way, I think this guy playing the Klingon's really good. Yeah, he is good. Yeah, it, and and he, it's a shame we didn't see more of him. He's only in this like you know couple couple, yeah. couple short scenes but that 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 line right there establishes as much about what the klingons are as anything we heard in errand of mercy or something else you for know? sure it's a very mm-hmm. disturbing line that reveals a very specific worldview. and then we go back to kirk and mccoy who have snuck in and found the forge they've found gunpowder they've got coal and sulfur yeah uh they found a bunker full of materials to make flintlocks and all they need now is a is a Klingon, uh, and then they'll right. they'll have their proof. By the way, they're not even bothering to whisper; <laughs> they're just talking right. in normal voices. And Kirk says, "You know, record all of this, and this will be evidence." 
as if there was something you could do with the evidence that you, about the treaty and stuff, but we never deal with that. Right, that solution. right. They never they never go that far yeah. to to uh, contact the Organians or or even just or contact the Klingons. contact or contact the Federation and yeah. say, hey, we got a problem. Yeah. Klingons are violating the treaty. You know, they need to be shut down. And this is above my pay grade. And here's right. the we gathered all this evidence. Here you go. And Kirk is not able to do that yet anyway, because they're not able to contact Starfleet because they're going to give themselves away. And then they hear some voices and they hide. I thought my people would grow tired of killing, but you were right. They see that it is easier than trading and it has pleasures. Another really disturbing line. Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and just as he's talking to Appella about him becoming essentially the leader of the whole planet and part of the Klingon Empire, McCoy <laughs> hits his tricorder. Yeah, by mistake. <laughs> Uh, and uh, the uh, the Klingon and Appella hear it, and so Kirk and McCoy have been have been outed. So they spring into action, and they knock out the Klingon and Appella, and they open the door to try to run out. And there's two villagers there with flintlocks, mm -hmm. and that brings us to the end of a very exciting Act Three. Act Four, right in the same spot. And by the way, I would say cliffhangers where then you resolve the cliffhanger instantly without much trouble. Right, yeah. It, maybe it wasn't as good a cliffhanger because they just take those guys out. And they're free. And they're free. Um, back in sickbay, Spock is sort of coming too. Nurse. Yes? Hit me. The pain will help me to consciousness. Hit me. Hit you? No, I can't. Blast you. Strike me. If I don't regain consciousness soon, it may be too late. Hit me. <laughs> and I love her first little slap. Just a eh. Harder! <laughs> Continue, the pain will help me to consciousness. And then Scotty uh, comes in. He's like, what are you doing, woman? It's a, it's a funny moment. So Scotty grabs Chapel, and Chapel's like, no, no, I need to slap him. And then Vega comes in, and boy, does he let let it rip into Spock. He just slaps it. And, his, and you know, Spock's face is going from one side to the other to the other. And Vega's putting all his weight and all his might into the slaps until Spock comes to. He grabs his hand and says... That will be quite enough. By the way, and maybe you won't maybe you won't have the same thought that I did. Is there a movie that you and I have discussed on the cinephiles that this reminds you of? Um let's see here. Uh oh, absolutely airplane. Yes. I always <laughs> think of airplane. Oh, oh my god. Oh, oh my god. Where there's the line of people. <laughs> the to, line of people, yeah. The, yeah. Um I think this is this is this is typical of this episode. I think this is a very entertaining scene. Yeah. That is stupid. <laughs> That's what I think about it. <laughs> think it's but it's a, entertaining. But it's entertaining. Yeah, it's entertaining. It's it's levity, and because uh, obviously this is a very heavy episode, and uh, and yeah, uh, Baker saved the day. Yeah, and then and then Spock, you know, says he's totally fine, and Nurse Chapel goes here. Let me help you, Mister Spock, and he says, "Thank you, Nurse. I'm quite fully recovered." Yes, I see you are. It's a weird B plot. But it, it's all done well, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. The Hill people are practicing firing the flintlock that they stole. Tyree's aiming. Kirk is giving him instructions. Not only does he fire, but he actually hits his target on his first shot. And I think the actor playing Tyree does a really good job of being very conflicted. Yeah, about oh, what he just absolutely. Did. This, is a, this is an awakening for him and not the kind of awakening that he wants, that, that he envisioned for, for himself and for his people. Pulling the trigger, that's it. There's there's no there's yeah. no going back. Yeah. You yeah. know? 
And McCoy, obviously unhappy, wants to talk to Kirk. And so they head off to the cave. And the first thing McCoy says is, It's not bad enough there's already one serpent in Eden teaching one side about gunpowder. You're going to make sure they all know about it. Again, we're back to serpents and Eden and all that stuff. Exactly. Each side receives the same knowledge and the same type of firearm. Have you gone out of your mind? Which is a weird strategy. Going into this conversation, even though it's it comes up in the dialogue that... McCoy is calling out Kirk for making these decisions after this bizarre ritual that he had with Nona. And clearly Nona wants Kirk and McCoy to furnish the Hill people with firepower that will blow the way the villagers. But there is a lot going on. Like there is so much, it's so provocative. And after all these years, after all these decades, after all the changes you know, I've gone through in my life as I've gotten older, after watching history run its course with Vietnam and then Afghanistan, and you hear Kirk so passionately behind his decision to establish a balance of power. On one hand, I think this is an amazing scene because I think the performances of William Shatner and DeForest Kelly are fantastic. There's so much conflict between them. If, you know, maybe think that there's always been a lot of conflict between Kirk and McCoy. You saw in the Corbomite maneuver, when he says, mm-hmm. anytime you can bluff me, doctor. And in, in the man trapping, he says, how your lost love affects your interest doesn't interest me. You know, I lost a man, want to know what killed him. Like they've always, they've gone at it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But this is not like this. And it's a really provocative scene. Uh, I love watching this scene. I agree, and I think this is what, one of the things that I think they do much less of in later episodes. It's not that there isn't conflict, and certainly like in Deep Space Nine, there's a lot of conflict, but Kirk said, I need McCoy on this trip. I need advice I can trust. He didn't say that because he thought McCoy was going to agree with him. He said, if, he, if McCoy was just going to agree with him, he didn't need him. You need someone's advice that disagrees with you. And he's disagreeing. And he's disagreeing. And that's part of one of the strengths of the original series is that, and again, this is why I think the Apple, even though they make the decision that I disagree with, the the my opinion was really well articulated by Spock. So that's okay. Like, that's what makes it a complicated show rather than a, we're not just going, here's the right thing to do. We're going... Let's argue about this. Right. Now McCoy's on this. Maybe she is controlling you. Is it a coincidence? This is exactly what she wants. Is it? She wants superior weapons. That's the one thing neither side can have. Bones, the normal development of this planet was a status quo between the hill people and the villagers. The Klingons changed that with the flintlocks. What that implies is that there was always conflict between the hill people and the villagers and that it was even. Well, the fact that you have hill people and you have villagers... You're already establishing that there are two different societies going on. Yes, but was there violent conflict between them? Violent co- Who knows? No, there wasn't because he said there wasn't. They have bows and arrows, but they've never used them for violence. Oh, well, there you go. So, so th- Because this is part of the problem. Again, it's a problem with his solution. It's a problem with the episode. Is The implication is they've always been at it. And now one person has higher weapons, so we got to maintain the balance so they can be evenly at it like they were before. But this goes back to my point. Like, why are the Klingons doing this? I, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Jim, that means you're condemning this whole planet to a war that may never end. It could go on for year after year, massacre after massacre. All right, Doctor. I, I just think that it's a powerful scene the way— I agree, yeah. 
you know, that, that they are really going at it, that McCoy is laying out for him what he is condemning this planet to do. And Kirk doesn't want to hear. He, he, he is upset by what he is hearing from McCoy. And, but he said, I need you there. Like back in the sick bay, he said, I need someone there whose opinion I trust. And McCoy is giving Kirk his opinion. Right. And Kirk is still making the decision that he feels is right. All right. All right. Say I'm wrong. Say I'm drugged. Say the woman drugged me. What is your sober, sensible solution to all this? This is what I said when we first started talking. Anyone who thinks there's a simple solution to these kinds of problems is wrong. Right. And I love that McCoy doesn't have one. He doesn't have a magical way to solve this problem. Although I think going to the Organians or dealing with the peace treaty might have been a better way than what they're doing. But he doesn't have one. And then this is where we get to this connection. Bones. Do you remember the 20th century brush wars on the Asian continent? Now, by the way, I don't think Vietnam was ever called brush war. That's not I think that's a Star Trek phrase. It is not right. It is a it is because I think what they're doing is like it's Vietnam ish. You know, we want you to think of Vietnam without actually saying Vietnam. Yes, I remember. It went on bloody year after bloody year. Well, what would you have suggested? That one side arm its friends with an overpowering weapon? Mankind would never have lived to travel space if they had. No. The only solution is what happened back then. Balance of power. And here's the thing. That does not describe Vietnam. And it doesn't describe most of these. There's no conflict that I can think of where we said, let's limit the kinds of weapons we're giving to someone in order for everything to be equal, mm-hmm. other than not using weapons of mass destruction. The only way we didn't escalate was not, we didn't give anyone nuclear bombs. But other than that, we gave the Vietnamese the latest weapons. They had the best stuff, just as we gave Afghanistan the latest weapons. We didn't, we, it's always, it's never been to maintain a balance of power. There's no way, we, we never said, hey, we want to maintain things even in Vietnam. Right. We want to keep the communists out of Vietnam. That's always been the motivation. So this isn't exactly analogous to anything that we've been in. I, I completely agree. The, the stakes in Vietnam and Afghanistan were, were much, much greater. And, you know, we weren't arming one side so they would have equal might. Weapons to the other side. That was, not, that was no, not the motive. We wanted to win. Right, right. That was not the motive. Well, and, and it's, you know, the Vietnamese was a French colony. And so the first war was a a war of rebellion against the French, and then we jumped in on the French side to put down a rebellion because we believed, and again, I'm not going to argue whether or not this point is true, there was the domino theory and that if a country became communist, well, the next door neighbor country was more likely to become communist, and then the Soviet Union would take over the world. That was the idea that we were afraid of. But in, in in the context of this episode, in the context of a private little war, this is the way that they are, that they are making a statement about about Vietnam. Yes. Like this this is the way they're doing it. Yeah. The decision in the episode that Kirk makes is he describes it as the trickiest, most difficult, dirtiest game of them all, but the only one that preserves both sides. In the sense of this episode, whether or not this is exactly exactly the situation of Vietnam, which it wasn't, right. or Afghanistan, which it wasn't, in the per- in the context of this episode what is his alternative? I will, I will give you a couple of answers that I think. But, because I think one of the interesting things, I actually think this is more useful in thinking about proxy wars. Because the difference in Vietnam and in the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is we were there. We weren't arming people to fight other people. 
that was our war. We were in the middle of it. Right. But mm-hmm. if you look at the Contras in Nicaragua, well, that's much closer to what's happening here. Or if you look at the war against the Soviets in Afghanistan, that's where we're arming another people to fight another people. That and and this is something I was and I was looking it up and uh, is that we're still doing it. We get we sell arms to ninety six different countries, a lot of them in the Middle East, and so like we are currently selling arms to Saudi Arabia. One of the big reasons we're selling arms to Saudi Arabia is because we're afraid of Iran, and so we are still. And, and this is so both today there is worry about Russia, just like there used to be worry about Soviet Union, and there's worried about Islamic extremism all over the world. So like an example of a proxy war is we support the Shah of Iran and the Shah was either a horrible, scary dictator or a really good leader, depending on where you were in Iran. Iran was very cosmopolitan and women had much more rights at the time. He gets thrown over by uh, Shia Islamic extremism. And we are really worried about that. So we give a lot of arms to a guy who is a Sunni, more secular guy to fight against Iran. And that guy's Saddam Hussein. And this is what we've done throughout American history Mm -hmm. is over and over we arm people because they're going to fight against other people. And then sometimes those people, like the Taliban is another example, end up not being such people that we want to be dealing with. And so when we're talking about this delicate balance that Kirk is talking about, it is far more del- – and this is where I go, to me, this is where the prime directive comes from, is over and over and over again getting involved in stuff and having it go south. That's where, to me, the prime directive right. comes from. Agreed. By the way, this is really bold that this actually – aired in 1968. I agree. Especially that it aired after the Tet Offensive. And even though the word brush wars was... is exactly the thing. It, it's close enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly it's about... It's, he's, he's making a direct reference to Vietnam without saying the words Vietnam. And I love where McCoy, because his next argument is so powerful. He says, Here's another morsel of agony for you. Since Tyree won't fight, he will be one of the first to die. He says, what does Kirk say? He says, War isn't a good one. Life. What what I go to when Kirk says war isn't a good life, but it's life, I go to I'm not going to kill today. Right. Where is the guy who said I'm not going to kill today? Maybe he's under the influence of Nana. That's well, and then again, that's really troubling. Because well, and in fact, that's the next thing he says. Because he goes, well, his wife is the only way to reach him. Back on the bridge, we just check in. The the Klingons haven't spotted them yet, but we do hear they beam someone aboard, which I'm assuming is. Our Klingon is now beamed back up to the Klingon ship. Yep. Mm-hmm. Kirk spots Nona getting dressed. And by the way, that's uh, that was not where the scene actually began. There's a deleted scene where you actually see Nona bathing in a stream. I've seen a picture of this scene. I've never seen the deleted scene, but yeah, it looked the, pretty the actual, uh, sexy. The actual deleted scene is on the blooper reel. Oh. You know, and uh, it was included on the blooper reel because it was taken out of context. But... The thing is, is that Nancy Kovac mm-hmm. insists that that was not her, oh. that they used a body double hmm. for the filming of that scene because she doesn't remember filming it. Okay. Um, now, I, I would like to know the truth of that. <laughs> you are here because I wished you here. Oh, I thought it was my idea. <laughs> yes. They always believe they come of free will. Tyree even thought the same when I cast my first spell on him. She's really holding the cards, it seems like. Well, and so two questions. One, does she believe that? She, I think she absolutely. She believes that, that she summoned him. Sure. Did she summon him? That I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, I think she didn't. I think Kirk is. But I, there is absolutely no way of knowing from zero to a hundred percent how much control Nona has on Kirk at this moment. Right. 
my feeling is it's 20% or 30%. I think there the influence is there. Yeah. But I still think that Kirk is the dom he's dominating. Yeah, I think he's you know. there. Yeah, I mean, well, and the thing is, is like if I have to make a decision and I kind of really like a person on one side of the decision and I kind of dislike the person on the other. I can't help having that affect me making the decision. The reason why I think that Kirk is in control is because of what he said. He's like, I'm not talking about giving them our phasers. Right. You know, I just want to establish a balance. Right. So what Nona wants it's is the give whole us thing. your phasers. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know. And she goes. Smell this fragrance. Some find it pleasing. And there is that leaf that we yep. saw before. Mm-hmm. And then it's starting. And now. Yeah. Now she has power over Yeah, him. absolutely. And we see him hit it, hit him, and you see him resist it, and he keeps trying to have his conversation, and she keeps getting it under his nose, and he keeps getting more affected by it, and who walks up while this is happening but Tyree. Tyree. And he walks up, but he walks into the frame. Yeah. He has a smile on his face yep. because he sees two people that mean the, everything yeah. to him, Nona and Kirk. But then that quickly changes yep. to surprise and shock when he realizes the context in which they are together. Yep. And then Kirk is completely taken over. Yes, you are lovely. Again, this is a really well-constructed moment because Kirk, who would never betray his friend Tyree, is now betraying his friend Tyree. And Tyree, who just said, I will not kill, lifts up that flintlock yep. and is aiming it at his brother, Kirk. He's, he's aiming it, and then he comes to his senses. Yep. And he looks at the gun, mm-hmm. and he's like, what have I done? What was I about to do? And he just throws the gun down. And then, and again, this is where Star Trek is really good, is right in the middle of these multiple complicated things going on. Here comes the Mugatu. <laughs> Another Mugatu. And, and that's what I love about this episode. Is like, like, these things are all over the place. And well, this one, it seems like, is the mate of the one that we already saw. Right, right. That's what they established. Um, and Kirk is not in fighting trim at yeah, this moment. Yeah, even when they're under attack initially, yeah. he still just wants to, like, you know, make out with Nona. She has trouble getting away from him. She finally gets away from him. She's under attack by the Mugatu, manages to roll away. Kirk kind of comes to enough to see there's a problem and just jumps on the Mugato because he's still out of it. Then he gets knocked away, finally draws his phaser and... and- Shoots it, and it disappears. And now, she had seen the phaser warming up some rocks before. Right. Now she sees what it really does. And she she, uh, takes a rock while Kirk is coming to, and she bonks him over the head with it and takes his phaser. By the way, I love the way it's shot, because they cut right before she hits him on the head. Yeah, you don't see it. You don't see her actually hit him. Yeah, which is, I think, a good choice. And Tyree's walking back into camp, and they go, where's the fire stick? There! I left it. There. It's a fine thing to leave lying around. What, what's great about it, though, is that it, this is Tyree saying, I, I absolutely refuse to kill. That's what he's saying at this mm-hmm, moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they, they run to Kirk. Who hit you? No, no. We cut to her. She's moving through the rocks. She sees some villagers, and she steps out says, I bring you victory for Appella. So remember when you asked before if we, we were talking about whether or not she loved Tyree, and we were talking about what her loyalty to him was and zero. There's zero. You're it's right. just about power for her. Right. Uh-huh. Right. Cause she's just like, okay, if, if Tyree is not going to embrace this, pa- the, 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 this potential for power. Yeah. And if this Kirk is not going to help me, right. Then I'm going to take this little box to the other side yeah. because that's where she sees her ascension to power. 
Irie's woman. She's a canoe too. And the next line, it went by me every time I watched it until I was a full adult. And then I finally actually heard the next line, which is... We won't trust this division to Appella. What does that mean? Appella said we had trouble earlier dividing some skins and a hill woman, which means dividing who, how you rape her. Oh. We won't trust this division to Appella. They're, they're going to do what they want. Yes, and maybe Appella told them about whoever kills the most hill people gets the woman. Well, we're not going to deal with that. We're, we're not going to bring her to him. We're going to rape her right now. Well, and this, this scene is really disturbing. It is. It is absolutely. It's, I mean, it's like, it's like watching the, the, the scene in West Side Story, the near rape in West Side Story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's the, you know, they don't get there, but it is really scary. And throughout the whole thing, I was going like, well, you have this weapon. Why aren't you shooting them? She doesn't know how to use it. I, that's what I think, too. There's even a moment where she they, they grab her and they're kissing her and she kind of escapes and draws her knife. And she, I think for so long, she still thinks this is going to work out. And this is this weird thing of like, I don't like Nona. I think she's been a villain. And uh, this uh, is, she is a villain. And she th- is a villain. But, but like you said, I mean, she's a she's an interesting character. She's mm-hmm. a complex character. My initial point at the top of the conversation about you know, I don't like the way uh, women are represented in, in so- certain areas of Star Trek, but she's clearly a strong, driven, and ambitious woman. Mm-hmm. But, like, these guys don't see her that way at all. No, no, she's just something to take. Right. Well, and this is the thing. This is why horrible things happen in war. So I don't have a problem with this. I have a problem with it, of course, but I don't have a problem with it being in this episode because this is an episode about what happens when war comes to a planet. Mm. And this is it. This is what is going to happen, and it's going to happen more after this. We're back with Kirk, and he realizes his phaser's gone and that she took it. Back to the attack. She pulls her knife out, and they disarm her easily. And then Kirk and Tyree and McCoy show up, and this is just, it's just horrible. Yeah. Because they say, Help him! It's a trap! The woman's tricked us! And then they just stab her and throw her to the ground. By the way, the stabbing, it looks like it hits her like in her right arm or something. Yeah, it's yeah. not it's not perfectly, but it but still really, really it's still upsetting. upsetting. And they fire McCoy gets hit, which they don't really say anything about. He gets kind of winged Shot on, the, in the, arm, on yeah. the arm. And Kirk comes in and takes out two guys, and we have the fight. And I love even though I go like, why isn't McCoy helping them? The shot of him walking up, watching the violence, and the expression on DeForest Kelly's face. Of sadness, of this is what this, this world is, is going to be. This has come to. Yeah, mm-hmm. is great. And I he think. leans, he kneels down to Nona and realizes that she's dead. Yep. Uh, this this is exactly what he was trying to avoid. Yep. Where Kirk initially said he was trying to yep. avoid, and now it is just escalated to to this point, and there's there's no turning back. This is really just the beginning. And Tyree has a rock, and is completely crazed, and he's repeatedly hitting someone in the head until Kirk comes up, grabs his arm, and stops him. And the look on Tyree's face at that moment is totally insane. Well, well Kirk gets gets into his face yeah. while they are face-to-face. And and he, he has his hands on both of Tyree's arms yep. to stop him from, from basically smashing the guy's face in. And he just looks at him. Yep. And Tyree is... He's he's crossed over. Yep, he's past the point of no return. Mm-hmm. Like this, this was his moment where he bit the apple. I want more of these, Kirk. Many more. 
I will kill them. And he sends his guys off to, tr- to track the villagers and I think to kill them too. And th- this is just what goes in my brain is I said, violence begets violence mm-hmm. because the hill people are now going to commit atrocities against the villagers. Yeah, this is the beginning of their war. Mm-hmm. Their, their private little war. Well, you got what you wanted. Not what I wanted, Bones. What had to be. And I go, it's not what has to be. Not what has to be. There, there are some other things we could do. And we call up to the Enterprise, and Spock's there. Spock, are you alive? An illogical question, Doctor, since obviously you are hearing my voice. Well, I don't know why I was worried. You can't kill a computer. I don't know. The levity is just doesn't work in this It's moment. not. Yeah, I mean, the, Spock's one is okay to me, but that line, I mean, you literally was just in this moment. Yeah, we were just in this ago. moment. It's just, it's just intrusive. And Kirk says... So Spock asked Scotty how long it would take him to reproduce 100 flintlocks. What? Didn't get that exactly, Captain. A hundred, what? A hundred. Pauses. Serpents. Serpents for the Garden of Eden. We're very tired, Mr. Spark. Beam us up home. It's the only downbeat ending of the of the second season. I mean, the first season had a couple, I mean, downbeat endings. Look at the ending of Charlie X. Uh, that was pretty downbeat. I mean, even sitting on the edge of forever, even though they restored the future, the fact that Edith Kilwer had to die, you know, that was a, kind of a downbeat ending. Um, but this is the only downbeat ending of season two. Like I mentioned, uh, the, during the last Beam Us Up Home scene, new music was composed by Gerald Freed. It was never used for any other Star Trek episode. And Gene Kuhn, in his, in his rewrite before Gene Roddenberry rewrote him, uh, Gene Kuhn wanted the, wanted the ending to be more upbeat. I don't know how you would do that, but uh, uh, he was obviously overwritten by Roddenberry. And uh, this is, speaking of Gene Kuhn, A Private Little War is the very last Star Trek episode to list Gene Kuhn as producer. Hmm. So long before you and I did this show, we talked about A Private Little War, and I said something about the end, and you, and I always had a perception of what the end was, and you said the opposite. And I've since, I literally did something I've never done before. What's that? Which is that before we recorded this episode, I went and looked at things other people said about this episode. And the reason is, is because my perception has always been that either he didn't give them the flintlocks or it was left ambiguous. And it seems like there are a few people that thought that, but the vast majority of people think that he did. And the reason I think it the other way, or that it's ambiguous, is he never answers Scotty's question. He starts to say, Scotty says, I don't know what you're talking about. And he starts to say this. And then he says, serpents into paradise and says, let's just go home. So to me, it's always been him deciding not to do it. But I don't know the answer. And maybe I, I'm very curious if anyone else in the world had my perception. So, so the question moment. is, the question is, so initially, Scotty was told to supply a hundred flintlocks. But he didn't quite hear him. And so Scotty was like, wait, what? And Kirk says, a hundred serpents, serpents for the Garden of Eden. So the question is, did Kirk, in saying serpents, did that final comment instruct Scotty to, uh, to construct a hundred flintlocks? Did they go forward with the plan to arm the hill people? My perception has always been that Kirk changed the word flintlocks to serpents just because symbolically he sees the flintlocks as serpents taking this peaceful planet right. out of its garden of Eden. Yeah, I agree. But, I agree that's what he's saying. But 
But at the same time, he was definitely ordering Scotty to construct 100 flintlocks, i.e. serpents, for this planet. There was never a question in my mind right. that, that's, that Kirk was telling Scotty to make the guns. It's so weird to me because, and I think from the little I looked on the internet, it seems like most people all think that. And so it's so weird to me that I was so certain. And I watched, I literally rewound and watched those lines like five times yeah. just to go. And I still go, it's, a, it's ambiguous at best to me. But I'm really curious what other people say. You asked earlier, what would I do? Well, we just saw a bit of what I would do in Trouble with Tribbles. There is clearly a when, – when the, the Klingons get caught poisoning the grain and having a spy, that is a diplomatic incident that, was, that they're really embarrassed about that gives the Federation a huge advantage. This is another one. To me, the solution, of course, is diplomacy, not just – because, because again, I go with McCoy. It's like, well, what are you going to do? So then you're going to give them rifles, and then you're going to give them this. This is endless war. And again, this is you know, Afghanistan war starts in the late seventies, and it's 2022 now, and things are not resolved in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. You know, that's 40 plus years of war. Like, these are not good solutions. To no, me. there's never a good idea to to arm the other side, to arm people like this. It never, it never works out. Very rarely has it worked out. I, I yeah. mean, it, it certainly has not worked out more than it has. Well, I will say this, though, uh, which is that because we can't go back in time and do stuff the other way, the Soviet Union might not fall if we didn't arm the Mujahideen in the war against Afghanistan. And so, but then that also, we also sent Osama bin Laden there, and that's, there might, probably isn't September 11th if there was not a war against Afghanistan. Well, there Afghanistan. you go. That's a this great is point. All, this, is why, this is why you can't just tear this apart and go, that's the answer. It's there, there is no way. You could yeah. argue, listen, you could say, well, you know, maybe Kirk didn't have to supply the whole people with Flintlock so fast. He could have gotten off the planet, reported the situation to Starfleet. You know, Starfleet would have been to the Klingons. Well, guys, you, you, you broke the organic peace treaty, slapped their hands, and it would have been it would have been a much, much bigger yeah. issue between the Federation and the Klingons. Yep. But no, what Kirk did was he acted on his own. Mm -hmm. And in earlier versions of the screenplay, mm. in earlier versions, Kirk was acting under orders from Starfleet to arm the villagers. It was He was under orders to do that. This episode is made more dramatic because he is cut off, basically cut off from Starfleet because he can't contact them because he'd give away the Enterprise. But he is making a decision on his own. And it's a decision that... When you see how history has played out these last 50 years, knowing how history has played out, you just cringe. It's heartbreaking that he makes this decision. It's at the same time, you know, it's easy for me to see, oh, well, you know, they could have gotten off the planet, gone to Starfleet, let them deal, dealt with it. But there is no easy solution. There is, you know, I don't have the answer. Uh, I, I, you know, was Kirk's answer the wrong one? Yeah. But what choice did he have? I don't know. Uh, it, and that's that's why these things just seem to be unavoidable. What Did anybody else have any opinions on the private little war? Yeah, absolutely. Walter Koenig had a pretty good opinion. He said there was one episode that confounded me because it seemed to be taking the position that was contrary to the general position of the show. And that had to do with the balance of power. The thinking behind it and the way I read it was almost fascist. That was a dangerous premise to beam across the country under the guise of entertainment. I was surprised. Wow. 
That's Walter Koenig. Mark Daniels, who directed the episode, said, I like the science fiction aspects of Star Trek, but I also like the fact that in the first two seasons, there was some genuine, dramatic appeal and social feeling. And they weren't gimmicky in terms of being space operas. A Private Little War is a great example. Hmm. And then Dorothy Fontana said, On this planet, there was a restricted war with low-cal weapons escalated by the Klingons. Well, God save our guys, so right away you increase the state of art on your side. But then they go up a notch, and then you go up a notch. And after a little while, you have to take responsibility for this. And that's what A Private Little War was all about. The show wasn't great, but I thought the message was very good. All right, th- that just gave me a bunch of thoughts. So I'll kind of I'll kind of give you my thoughts, and part of it is going to be me re- rewriting this show a little bit. Okay. So what I think, so Dorothy Fontana said that there was this conflict between these two sides, and that they were escalating, right? And I think the the problem, one of the problems with the script is that Kirk says, "Hey, this was all peaceful." Right. Right. If if, the, if it actually there had always been violence between the hill people and the village people, that actually would have made this make work better. Right, right. Because when they, when they beam down, Kirk's saying, no, they were completely peaceful. Everything was all peace, yeah. love and understanding and everything was great. And then there was no division. There was no conflict. It was never established that there was conflict right. between the Hill people and the villagers. Yeah. And if they had done that, then then this stuff would have made more sense. I agree. And you still could have had Ty- Tyree as like the Gandhi figure who was trying to resolve the conflict so he could still be a peaceful person, mm. but but there's actually a conflict already going on. That's one thing. Second thing is, is that because they don't deal with how much power Nona has over Kirk, it makes the ending more troubling whichever way it goes. It makes the ending more troubling. So the, it was either sort of deal with that more or deal with that less. The third thing I would say is that even is that we want our guys to do cool stuff and Kirk doesn't come up with a cool plan. And so what I think, if they had turned this into an episode of, this is how I would rewrite it. Let's embarrass the Klingon. Let's make the Klingon, let's get the villagers to reject the Klingon. And Kirk comes up with a plan to do that. And Tyree, as the Gandhi figure, helps them to throw away the flintlocks. That would be, that would be to me, a more Star Trek-y episode. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely it would have been. I mean, this one, it, you know... It, it is what it is, and it's not an episode that I seek out because it makes me uncomfortable. It certainly engages in some serious ideas. It Absolutely. certainly has some really good moments and good performances, particularly DeForest Kelly, I would say, is fantastic. And it is it is the most troubling of all the episodes of the original series. I completely me. agree with that. And I, I think the fact that it is it is so troubling is I think why it is a it is a an essential episode because it does start conversation because mm-hmm. there is no easy solution it is such a it is such a it is such a gray zone and that's why we keep getting ourselves we meaning everybody we we keep getting ourselves into the same trouble over and over and over again and maybe that's the point of the episode is that, that there is there's no easy outcome to this there is no easy outcome to this. I mean, the outcome you just gave would have been great. And in, in the context of a 50-minute Star Trek episode, it would have been great. And I would have bought it. I would have thought, oh, well, it's fun and great. satisfying. Right. Satisfying. You have a happy ending. You but know, we wouldn't but, have had this conversation. Uh, we definitely would not yeah. have had this conversation. But I think the fact that a 55-year-old television series has an episode, one episode uh, among others, that can ha- start this kind of a conversation is the reason why the original series has endured and remains the uh, most significant and groundbreaking, trailblazing and provocative and forward thinking 
in terms of the ideas and conversations that it stirs, series of them all. I just want to say one more thing. We talked about where could the prime directive have come from. And what I would love people to think about is not how Star Trek applies the prime directive, but how should we apply it? There are some times where interfering in another culture, another country, is absolutely necessary and the right thing to do. And there's sometimes where it leads to decades and decades of pain. And so what I would say that maybe we can get from this episode is to take those questions very, very seriously. And that even means allowing countries sometimes to do stuff that we don't particularly like because that might end up being the better solution. And, and, I, and I don't have the answers. I mean, I, I, I certainly uh, can talk about what an episode like this proposes, the, the solutions that it does propose, but I, I certainly uh, don't, don't have the answers. I, I always thought, certainly when I was growing up, that Kirk always made the right decision. And this is one episode where I'm not sure that he does. Mm-hmm. But then again, I, I don't know what the alternative is. No. I mean, the fact that you see the ending with the, with the serpents as being ambiguous, and, and I see it as pretty direct that yeah. you know, these serpents are flintlocks. The fact that, it, that you see it as one way and I see it another way is another reason that makes this episode and the show itself so great. Well, obviously, this brought up a whole bunch of questions, and we would really love to hear what you think about A Private Little War. In particular, what did you think about the final moment? What does it mean? You can always visit us on social media. Do a search for us on Facebook. We're Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. And please make sure that you follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and certainly YouTube. You can listen to the audio. But make sure that when you go to Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. These reviews on Apple Podcasts are really helpful. They really help us get the word out there. And make sure that you share Enterprise Incidents on your social media platforms so that other sci-fi fans, Star Trek fans, can help that you can help them discover enterprise incidents really help us get the word about enterprise incidents out there and if you want to reach me you can do it at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram and if you're interested in movies that deal with very complicated issues of war well on my podcast the cinephiles you might want to check out our episodes on inglorious bastards a very difficult movie about war ken burns is the civil war we went through that that looks at many many sides of very complicated issues Patton apocalypse now and of course star trek's version of this star trek six the undiscovered Undiscovered country Country. with my good friend scott mance that was a fun one yes and make sure you follow me on twitter and instagram at movie mance and on the next episode of enterprise incidents we are going to once again be joined by our honorary host Director Ralph Sinensky for the fourth episode of Star Trek. He directed that episode is Obsession. Very excited to welcome our good friend Ralph Sinensky back to Enterprise Incidents for our deep dive of Obsession. And until then, keep going boldly.